Hey everybody, Jibs here from the Lore Seekers Podcast. And I just want to pop in here real quick. First off, wish you all well and good health with everything going on right now in the world. But I just want to pop here and say, we hope you enjoy the Lore Lesson Compilation. This is going to be part one of part of a two-part series for Volume 6. So we hope you enjoy this. Have fun. Timestamps are in the details of the episode page over at loreseekerspodcast.com or whatever app you are currently using. Scroll through the details of this episode and you'll find all the timestamps so you can listen to whatever you want, however you want. We wish you well. Have a great week. Stay awesome. Enjoy part one of Volume 6 Lore Lesson Compilation. Lore lesson number 80, oh. my friends. Tonight, this is supposed to be a surprise for Jibbles, but he has been on a Dwemer kick. I'm up to my eyeballs and brass. Yes, he's been on a Dwemer kick lately, and I thought that I would um, feed his need for more Dwemer stuff. And lore lesson number 80, we are going to talk about the Anumidium which you may remember me mentioning way back in lore lesson number 25 when we covered the Dwemer. But we're going to get into it. In order to get there, we have to set some background on the Dwemer for those of you who may not remember or have maybe this is your first time hearing about the Dwemer and the speculation of what the heck happened to him. So anyway, Dwemer... Dwemer or Dwemer, whatever you want to say. They were also known as the people of the deep. And they're arguably... Actually, you can't even freaking argue it. You cannot argue it. They are the most iconic and fabled race in all of the lore of Elder Scrolls. Like, there's no doubt. All the more reason to bring back yeah, a piece of it. Right. So, the Dwemer. The word. In itself means the deep elves now quite possibly through some through some of the dwemer translations they it could also possibly mean the smart elves as some of the text may have suggested oh they're smart they would advance tamriel in eons if they were brought, uh, eons in the future if they were brought back they would because they have an incredible tie to all things technology, and many things arcane. So we'll talk a little bit more about that too. Good point, Jibs. So now, they were thought of as dwarves. Now, that was kind of a misnomer. And the reason being is because they were not a small species of elves at at all. Now, they are a subspecies of elves, the Dwemer are. But the fact is, the armor that they wore proves that their size was actually that of a a typical human or a typical elf. Now, it's believed that the reason they got the name Dwarf, or that moniker, was because the giants of the Velothi Mountains, who lived near a lot of the Dwemer, would have undoubtedly considered the Dwemer to be unusually small in comparison to themselves. So they called them Dwarf-like. And that's where they think that that moniker came from. But they were really just kind of normal size. Now, they weren't as tall as the high elves, so I will say that. Anyway. So the Dwemer were known for being highly technologically advanced. They were tinkers, they were inventors, explorers, and they were masters of using the natural elements to power their creations. 
Now, in their vast underground cities and workshops, the Dwemer created things such as airships. Yes, that's a thing. Sentient machines, mechanical observatories, lighting systems, and many, many more things. Now, here's the awesome thing about the Dwemer. All of these, or many of these creations, these mechanical constructs, continued to be functional for years, even after their mysterious disappearance. That's how efficient the Dwemer were at creating. So, very, very intriguing race. Now, the Dwemer remain, even long after their fabled disappearance, lots about the Dwemer continues to be on Tamriel. So to understand where we're headed with this particular lore lesson, here is a very quick synopsis of the events surrounding the Dwemer's mysterious disappearance. Now, we covered this all as we were talking about earlier in lore lesson number 25, if you want the full story. It's on our website and in... I forget the volume that it's in, but lore lesson 25. So in the first era, the year 700, the Battle of Red Mountain in Morrowind was between the Dwemer and the Chimer, which is the race that was later to become known as the Dark Elves. The battle was the culmination of many, many years of fighting between the two elven races for supremacy. Now, during the battle, somewhere deep within the mountain itself, deep within Red Mountain, something happened that caused the disappearance of the entire Dwemer race in an instant. Now, the, where the mystery actually lies is what exactly that was. There's a lot of speculation and theory, and I'm going to cover the biggest theory. Now, it's speculated that the Dwemer had discovered that the heart of Lorcan, the actual heart of a god, a powerful ancient relic, it was the divine spark of Lorcan. Some people speculate that the Dwemer discovered it beneath Red Mountain. Now, in order to harness the power of the relic, because of course the Dwemer are going to try and tap into this thing if they find something that powerful. In order to harness the power of that relic, the Dwemer chief tonal architect by the name of Kagranak constructed some very legendary tools to do the job. These tools were known as Kagranek's tools. So when the Chimer found out that the Dwemer were attempting to harness the power of the heart of Lorcan, they thought that was the most blasphemous act against the divines. No way, not going to happen. And they vowed to stop their attempt. So now, we don't know what Kagranak's ultimate goal was, but it was speculated. This is where it gets cool. It was speculated that Kagranak was trying to elevate the Anumidium, which was a giant brass golem. He wanted to erect this thing. That was probably a poor choice of words. He wanted to bring this thing to life, <laughs> to be a new god for the Dwemer, powered by the heart of Lorcan. The Anumidium, if activated, would have been a weapon of devastating power. A weapon of mass destruction. But something happened. Something stopped the empowerment of the Anumidium, and the Dwemer race as a whole disappeared in the process. Now that is where the mystery lies. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the Animidium. That's what the lore lesson is on, by the way. <laughs> it is on the Animidium. So it was a lot of setup to bring it to the story of the Animidium. But for those of you who may have missed the lore lesson on the Dwemer, if you really don't know the history of it, you're going to be like, what the heck? So anyway, that was the reason for the backstory. Now, getting to the heart of the lore lesson, what exactly is the Animidium? So it's also known as the Numidium or the Brass God. This was literally a giant Dwemer golem constructed by Kagernak. He constructed the golem with the sole purpose of transforming the shell into a new god for the Dwemer by utilizing the, the heart of Lorcan itself. Now, it is also speculated that Lord Kagernak's deeper purpose was to use the Animidium to take control of Residane, which at the time was called Residane, but it's now called Morrowind, away from the Chimer, who is now known as the Dunmer. This was ancient times. And that would allow the Dwemer race to transcend Mundus and become immortal. All things that would potentially break the wants of the divines. So many believe that tapping into the heart of Lorcan was reckless and dangerous, posing very unjustifiable risks. But the craft lord Kagernak and his followers ignored the naysayers and continued to forge on. Kagernak had constructed specialized tools imbued with very powerful enchantments capable of unlocking the power of the heart of Lorcan. So these tools, they were named Sunder and Keening. In order to use these tools, he also constructed a gauntlet called the Wraith Guard, which would allow the user to safely wield the tools. They were that powerful. So Kagernak began his attempt to tap, and tap into the power of the Heart of Lorcan deep within the Red Mountain. But in an instant, the entirety of the Dwemer race disappeared from the face of Nern. Wherever they sat, boom, they were gone. Now there are no further details of the disappearance of the Dwemer. So without power, the Animidium just remained a shell. That's all it was. It was just a construct with no power. Now eventually it fell into the hands of the tribunal, which you'll remember the tribunal as Omalexia, Lord Vivek, and Sotha Seal. Now, they reigned supreme in Morrowind at the time, or in Residane at the time. So Tiber Septim at the same time had began to conquer most of Tamriel, and he had his sights set on the lands of Morrowind. That would have been his final conquest. However, at the time, the tribunal of Morrowind was very weakened because they had their own problems with Dagoth-Ur. Dagoth-Ur had cut off their access to the Heart of Lorcan. Now, a little fun fact here. Almalexia, Lord Vivek, and Sothasil were known as living gods, and the reason they were able to become living gods was because they utilized Kagernak's tools after the Dwemer disappeared to access the power of the Heart of Lorcan, elevating them into living gods. But when Dagoth-Ur cut off their access to the heart of Lorcan, they were in a weakened state. Well, in this weakened state, Tiber Septim got smart and decided to attack. 
Now, rather than risking war in that weakened state, the tribunal decided to sign a treaty with Tiber Septim instead. Now, as part of that treaty, the empire would receive the Anumidium as a gift, but still had no power. So Tiber Septim, immediately seeing the potential in the Anumidium, set the imperial battle mage Surin Arctus to work repairing and learning how to power the Anumidium. Here's a little fun fact. It is rumored that the halls of Colossus and elsewhere were constructed for the purpose of concealing the Anumidium while the Imperial Battle Mage Arctus worked to repair the relic. Interesting. Very. So Arctus created the Totem of Tiber Septum. This was an artifact that allowed the bearer to control the Anumidium, and he was going to give that to Tiber Septum. But the Animidium would not work without something as powerful as the Heart of Lorcan. So in response, Arctus utilized an alternate source of power, a massive soul gem called the Mantella. Now the gem itself required a life force, a very powerful life force, to be its source of power. So Arctus, very powerful in the arcane arts himself, decided to use his own heart. Fun fact. The Mantella was a massive green gem capable of containing the life force of very powerful beings. It became most known for holding the soul of the Underking, a mysterious figure of myth and legend known throughout Tamriel in the Third Era. Now, some describe the Underking as an old, powerful lich or archmage who was the basis for a large legion of living and undead followers throughout the Iliac Bay. But who was the Underking? Don't worry, we'll get there. So, finally finding success in the Second Era, year 896-ish, the Numidium was activated near the city of Rimen and elsewhere and helped Tiber Septim and his forces defeat the Aldmeri Dominion. So remember, this is late Second Era. This is... Uh, 300 and some odd years past the time, the timeline of ESO. Now, Tiber Septim's conquest of Tamriel was complete. So Septim continued to utilize the power of the Anumidium, and thereafter he started defeating any remaining royal families who refused fealty to his rule. He was basically saying, you're not going to bend the knee? You're done. And he'd use the Anumidium to wipe them out. Now, that pissed off Zurin Arctus, the one who supplied his own heart to power the Anumidium. So he disagreed with the use of the golem in that way. So attempting to, acclaim, or to reclaim his own heart from the Mantella, the battle mage inventor and the Numidium were both destroyed. That was it. The thing was done. Now, the Mantella was said to have been blown sky-high right into the realm of Aetherius itself. Although the Mantella was lost, Arctus did not die. Instead, he transformed into an incredibly powerful lich known as the Underking. The remains of the Animidium were scattered across the landscape of Tamriel. So in the centuries that followed the destruction of the Animidium, the Blades, members of an elite imperial order dedicated to the protection and service of the Emperor, were tasked 
with hunting down and collecting the pieces of the destroyed anumidium strewn across Tamriel. This hunt for the parts of the anumidium triggered the events of a well-known phenomenon in Tamriel known as the Warp in the West. We will cover the Warp in the West next week. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, so short and precise. It, it has a pungent odor, though. It, it does. I don't know. Did you, like, leak a fart somewhere in there that I need to know about? It didn't know. <laughs> did you, like, think, like, oh, he won't hear it because I'm letting this like spell a baby's off. diaper after that Indian food. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go through that whole scene right now. Oh. <laughs> it smells like Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> My new lore lesson spell, it is odiferous. <laughs> I so forgot she said. Oh, dude, she totally did. Oh, my God, you guys. Anchorman might be one of the best movies ever. Oh, I'm crying. Oh, the best part oh. is that's going to make it into our lore lesson compilation right there. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in. Someone's going to be on a road trip with their family. <laughs> oh god uh, I know. well hopefully uh, mom and dad don't let their little ones watch um anchorman because uh, it's it's it has some odiferous parts <laughs> apparently oh friends lore lesson number 81 we are getting there lore lesson 81 that was my old football number believe it or not you played and football i'm old so i didn't know you anyway. played football i did oh you were a jock you were a dick I was. I still kind of am. Oh, what's an entitled jock? Listen to this, folks. This is what I put up with. I would not call me entitled. I would not. A schmuck jock no. is what I'm working Crap with. just got serious. I earned everything. <laughs> All right. So anyway, lore lesson number 81. We are covering something tonight, friends, that is going to blow your freaking minds because it blew mine. When I was writing this lore lesson. So we are following up to our lore lesson last week on the Numidium, which, as you know, was a giant Dwemer golem constructed by Lord Kagranak. But this week we're going to dive into a phenomenon which took place in the Iliac Bay in the Third Era that has a direct correlation to the Numidium. And it is known as the Warp in the West. May or may have, may or may not have heard of this. It's really interesting. So pay attention. That's including you, Jibs. Okay, Dad. Put your thinking cap on. Okay. All right. Third era, year 405. Okay, picture this. Emperor Uriel Septim VII sends an agent of the Blades to investigate the death of King Lysandus of Daggerfall. Tracking? King Lysanus of Daggerfall was assassinated. Now, the agent that was tasked with revealing the killer of King Lysandus, that's the player, by the way, that's you, you're investigating. He also has been tasked with recovering the totem of Tiber Septim. Now, what is that? Fun fact. The totem of Tiber Septim was a very powerful artifact that was created, which allowed the bearer to control the Numidium. 
Now, as you recall again, the new the Numidium was a weapon used by Tiber Septim himself to conquer nearly all of Tamriel. Minus Morrowind. But he received the Numidium as a gift for not raising over Morrowind. Anyway, we covered that last week. So, with some investigative work, this agent, dispatched by Uriel Septim VII, discovers that a diplomat by the name of Lord... Lord Woodbourne had attempted to kill and succeeded in killing King Lysandus of Daggerfall in order to seize power in the region. Now, the agent found the recovered totem. He found and recovered the totem from Woodbourne's co-conspirator, which happened to be Lysandus' own son, Gothrid, who had taken power as the new king of Daggerfall. Now, I know, super boring, super convoluted. Don't worry, we're going to get there. The story is amazing. So the totem of Tiber's septum was now up for grabs. And the various factions in the Iliac Bay began to quarrel for its control. Now, remember, the totem of Tiber's septum controls the freaking Numidium. Numidium is a very, very powerful golem. Everybody wanted control. So... The creator of the tour of the totem, Zurin Arctus, had placed a seal on the artifact during its creation that only allowed those of royal lineage or those with a supernatural affinity the ability to wield its power. Others without such qualifications would be killed instantly if they attempted to activate the Numidium. So shortly thereafter, the seven factions in the realm of Iliac Bay that were deemed worthy of claiming the totem began to emerge. Now, they included Sentinel, Wayrest, Daggerfall. Believe it or not, freaking Manamarco, the King of Worms, was worthy, deemed worthy. There was also the Orcish warlord Gortwag Gronagorm. And the underking and emperor Uriel Septim VII were all among the claimants to the artifact to control the new medium. But something very, very strange occurred without explanation in the days following. The Warp in the West, also known as the Miracle of Peace, occurred between the 9th and the 11th of Frostfall in the third era, year 417. No accounts can accurately describe exactly what happened, but natural disasters began to ravage the entire region of Iliac Bay. Earthquakes, freak sandstorms, tsunamis. Not only that, but spontaneous, unexplained battles between the warring factions resulted forest fires all over the place. It was bedlam what was going on, and nobody could explain it. Fun fact. During the Warp in the West, many factions found themselves in unexplained combat with each other. Orsinium and Wayrest clashed in unexpected conflict. A three-way clash between Daggerfall, Wayrest, and Orsinium took place in the Alessian Hills. Although the battles undoubtedly took place, Nobody could explain how the skirmishes began 
or how the armies were able to traverse the distances to the battlefields so quickly. Nobody freaking knew how they got there. No explanation. It was as if the entire region was in some sort of time crisis. But after the strange anomaly ended on the 11th of Frostfall, Iliac Bay's 44 independent regions were dwindled into four. And the ones that that they dwindled down into were Daggerfall, Sentinel, Wayrest, and Orsinium, as we know them today. They were the only four to remain after this weird freaking phenomenon took place. These four powers continued to battle for several months after the warp, but none of the battles were even close to the severity and the scale of fury that was unleashed during the battles during the warp in the West. Fun fact. The new borders between Daggerfall, Sentinel, Wayrest, and Orsinium that had been created by the battles of the warp in the West were very clearly defined, and they can be seen in the Elder Scrolls Online. They were very clearly defined by desolate, blackened areas raised by by the natural disasters or the battles themselves. So although much of the reasons for the warp in the West or the facts surrounding how it actually occurred remained unexplained, the events of the phenomena resulted in a stable and relatively peaceful Eliac Bay in the years that followed. The once warring factions actually unified and remained loyal to the Empire. Many believed the warp in the West was a miracle of divine origin designed to purify the land and make it whole once again. So what actually happened? Now, the explanations surrounding the warp in the West remain very contradictory and paradoxical to this day. Many reported that although there was no plausible historical account of what actually occurred, it was nevertheless a miracle. Fun fact. During the Warp in the West, each of the seven powers reportedly took ownership and control of the totem of Tiber Septum somehow at the same time. And they used it to achieve their individual goals. Now, by all accounts, each of these factions were aware of what was happening at the time, but no further explanations of how or why they got there proved forthcoming. The Warp in the West is sometimes referred to as a dragon break, with numerous explainable realities occurring parallel to one another as dragon breaks do, although its effects were only localized to the region of Iliac Bay, and that's the first time in Tamrielic history that's ever happened. So the Numidium at the time appeared to have disappeared from Tamriel altogether as a result of the warp in the West, because it was never, ever seen again. The Underking, who originally supplied his own heart to power the Numidium, was also never seen again. The bottom line is there is just no traceable evidence describing exactly what happened on those three days. However, whatever it was, it seemed to bring some semblance of peace and stability back to the region of Iliac Bay. Now, if new information is ever discovered, you can be sure that the lore seekers will be there to investigate. That is gnarly, dude. Yeah. I never... I had never heard of 
the warp in the West. I had heard of it several times, but I kind of avoided it. Because <laughs> the like, dragon break know. mess? Well, yeah, because it was kind of dragon breaky, you know, where you have all those parallel realities going on in, at the same time. But once I covered the new medium, I was like, oh, I'm kind of effed on this one. I'm going to have to cover the warp. I'm not going to lie. I read for probably two hours before I got it. I was like, oh, okay. Now I get it. Right. So anyway, it's 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 freaky when you kind of when you think about it. Like, oh my, could you imagine that freaking happening? Like all these different powers getting what they all wanted in the first place, but not knowing how. Like you end up on a battlefield with two factions fighting each other, and you have no freaking idea or any any recollection of your army traveling. All of a sudden, you're just boom. You're in a fight. It almost brings me back because, you know, we just ran Sunspire last night. And it almost brings me back to, like, was there some kind of tear in time? You know, was there something that just happened in some way, some fashion that just affected all, you know, just kind of had, like, this trickle-down effect. And as a result, all the things happened simultaneously. So if you ask me, if you ask me, divine intervention a hundred percent. And yeah, this huge pun intended there because we say divine intervention in our own worlds, but in Tamriel, it literally means the divines intervened. That is exactly what I think happened here because there's no other explanation. And then it brings stability. So, I mean, that's eight, that's Adric influence a hundred percent. Thanks, Dendar. I know you're watching. The, Stendar. Anyway. You just throw out the two, Stendar? I did. Do, I do. St- Hey, Is that how you do it? Yeah. Just like, yeah. Ooh, there's a nice shing on the end of that. There is. You, you're kind of mastering your craft. I'll give you I'm that. getting better, McKay. All right. Lord lesson number 82, my friends. Since it is so dang close to... <laughs> Turkey Day. You're five. We are going, I know I'm five. We are going to talk about giving thanks in Tamriel. Now, believe it or not, despite my attempts, Tamriel does not actually have a proper Thanksgiving celebration. After scouring the interwebs for quite a while in hopes of finding and detailing some parallel holiday for all of our listeners to enjoy... There just is not any official day of thanks in the Elder Scrolls universe. So now there's a few little holidays that give a small nod to Thanksgiving, but I was really, really surprised that I couldn't find anything more concrete. So, given the nature of how many races there are in Tamriel and how some of them actually found themselves on the shore of Tamriel having come from other places, I truly believe that there is cause for celebration amongst these established cultures, which they honor those pilgrims who forged ahead to distant lands to build better lives for themselves. Here are the modern races of Tamriel, whose ancestors are actual pilgrims. The Elven Races. The Aldmer first arrived from their ancestral home of Aldmeris on the northern shores of Oridon during the Merithic era. 
a legendary High Elf Lord by the name of Tornan, was the very first Aldmer to disembark from the foremost of their nine ships. Sounds an awful lot like pilgrims. Tornan claimed the island for his people, gave Oridon its name, and swore a blood oath that he would never leave it. Now, as the other Aldmer began... Aldmer, sorry, Aldmer with a D... As they began to explore the island, they encountered a number of very fearsome native creatures known as the Gatus, the Ilyadi, and the Welwa. Still see Welwa. While some suggested that they flee for safer lands, Tornan refused, and he battled with the monsters, slaying them with powers drawn from the teachings of his Aldmer ancestors. Free of danger, the Aldmer resumed taming the land, using magic to sculpt and tend the land to their needs. Sounds awfully pilgrim. Now, afterwards, the Aldmer spread throughout Oridon in earnest, eventually inhabiting the rest of the Somerset Isles, and the Isles became divided into several different social classes. Also sounds very pilgrim. Later, the Aldmer continued to travel and explore beyond the islands, eventually colonizing mainland Tamriel. Definitely something to be thankful for. Next is the Aelids. Now, the Aelids originated from the Dawn Era or from the early Merithic Era as many Mer elves were departing from the Somerset Isles. Once again, they were on the move. Now, many of those that became aliens traveled to their new home in hopes of creating their own new culture in the new lands. Sounds very pilgrim. Those who became aliens did so in the central and southwest regions of Tamriel. Most of these pioneers left Somerset to escape the strict Aldmeri regulations against the worship of Daedra, among other existing issues in the region at the time. Now, if you can't draw parallels to our modern world and an exodus of people to new places for better things for themselves and their family, then you's crazy. So most of these pilgrims settled in the heartlands of Cyrodiil itself. We're still talking aliens here as documented by a cartographer known as Topal the Pilot. So if you haven't heard of Topal or Topal the Pilot, go listen to our lore lesson on it or just read it on our website. We have a lore lesson on Topal the Pilot. That is one of my very favorite lore lessons that we have ever done. It is an incredible story. So here in Cyrodiil, where the aliens landed... Far away from their high elven home, their new culture began to thrive. Sounds very pilgrim. Let's talk about the Dunmer. Much to Master my race. Much to my chagrin. <clears throat> Look, I, I'm just going to say this. Um, you're going to have to dial that back. Do you want this relationship to continue? There, nobody said anything about a relationship. This is a partnership. Brothers got a hug. <laughs> just like was saying. <laughs> 50 50 50 50 <laughs> let's talk dunmer the dark elves the dark-skinned cousins of the high elves and the wood elves hail from the province of morrowind and that's all i have to say about that <laughs> and i was running <laughs> but we're still talking elves and my point is is that the dunmer were descendants from the original pilgrims, the original Aldmer that came all the way from Aldmeris to seek better life. 
That's where they came from. And they spent a massive crap ton of time just trying to find where it was. <laughs> where was our home again? Anyway. That's it's actually true. They're kind of the OG um, pilgrims. Exactly. So the Bosmer, are, they're in the same boat as the Dunmer were, only they weren't douchey and enslaved a bunch of people. But the Bosmer... They were also tired of the politics of the Altmer, and they wanted to live a life free of oppression and rules and have their own rules, their own society, and a large number of Altmer bailed and settled in Valenwood, and over time they became the, fa- they became the fabled el- wood elves. Pilgrims moving from one place to another. Let's talk the Nords. You want to talk about pilgrims? This is huge. The early Nordic ancestors traveled from their ancient continent of Atmora, which is northernmost continent uh, above Nern. And they traveled by sea, on ships. Most modern inhabitants of Skyrim are descendants of these people. And history claims that a great civil war took place in Atmora and, re- and a revered Nordic hero. And that Nordic hero's name was Isgrimor. Now he took as many Atmorans as he could and as many as it wanted to follow them and he sailed south eventually coming ashore in the northern area of Skyrim at Hasarik Head is where they landed. Pilgrims. Now the Red Guard. They had a little different reason for leaving where they lived. Because their island was sinking. (laughs) Problem. (laughs) Generally. Like California right now. You generally want to step on a boat if your continent is sinking. (laughs) Get on a boat. Anyway. I'm on a boat and I'm <laughs> I'm on a boat. Okay, so the Red Guard <laughs> The Red Guard, the Yakudans at the time, they were called Yokudans because they were coming from the islands of Yokuda. What'd you call me? Called you a regatta. We're gonna get there. Right. Um So they landed on the shores of what is now Hammerfell. And when they landed, they were pissed. They were pissed <laughs> off pilgrims. But the Yakutans began to conquer or enslave everything in their path in Hammerfell when they landed. Still, pilgrims. They're just dick ones, but they're pilgrims still. So it's clear from the start, the Yakutans did not have friendship or cohabitation in mind. They had conquest in mind. So to that end, the weaker or relative relative lack of opposition that the Yakutans encountered by the natives in Tamriel further segregated them from any desire to intermingle after they landed. Instead, it furthered their feeling that they were superior and that any race who did not fight to the death for their homeland was not worthy of mercy. Remember I was talking about Sysahan being one of my favorite characters. Yeah. yeah. Now, he wasn't necessarily part of this pilgrimage. This was much later in the timeline of ESO. But anyway, a um, little fun fact about it. The, the name Redguard comes from the loose pronunciation of the Yokudan term Ragata, which means warrior wave. Now, that term originates from the Yokudans' rapid advance into Tamriel. As soon as they landed, they were on the warpath. The ferocity and versatility of the Red Guard gave them a distinct reputation of being fierce warriors and skilled scouts. Now, see, I'm, I respect that. Like, they land and they're all about 
getting shit done. That's that's exactly how the Vikings were. I mean, to bring up kind of something funny that we talked about on another show, Viking, Nord, kind of the same shit. Yeah. But the Vikings were the same way. It was all about conquest and expanding their lands and exploring and making new, you know, new lands for their people. It was not about showing up and being like, Hey guys, how are you? Can I have a turkey leg too? It was like, Bitch, I'm gonna kill you and I'm gonna take your turkey leg yeah. and I'm gonna take your wife. That's it was terrible. I mean, look, look, like that's how I live my life is and I wanna put on a shirt, but I'm afraid my son will see it. Get shit done. And I respect the fact that the the Nords did it. Respect the fact that the Red Guards did it. And it's worked out pretty well since then. It has. So, you know. So anyway, you can see the similarities between even though there's no actual holiday, we're gonna talk about some holidays here in a second, but there's it's not so many of the races in Elder Scrolls Online that we love didn't just show up. I mean, they were looking for something better. They are a hundred percent pilgrims. So I'm really, really surprised that there's not much in the way of holidays or celebrations in these Elder Scrolls, you know, cultural races or racist cultures that um, alludes to Thanksgiving. I'm surprised. So anyway, Um, and I want to announce the next expansion for the Elder Scrolls Online, Thanksgiving. Black Marsh. (laughs) Black Marsh. Redo. The Black Marsh version. No. (laughs) Part two. So now there are some holidays out there either in the same month, which is Sun's Dusk, really, is the is November in Elder Scrolls, that have some similarities to our modern Thanksgiving. So let's kind of go over those. The first one's called yeah. North Wind's Prayer. And that's a festival held in the Imperial City on the 15th of Evening Star, which is December. It is a Thanksgiving to the gods for a good harvest and a mild winter. So the temples offer all of their services, including blessings, curing, and healing for half of the normal donation rates. Oh, you're so nice. And the festival (laughs) is mentioned in the book, The Wolf Queen, book three. The next one is a Red Guard holiday by the name of the Feast of the Tiger. And this one is held in the Bantha on the 14th of Last Seed. That's August. Now, it was probably once a religious holiday honoring the Tiger God rather than actually thanksgiving they're really just kind of honoring a god there so yeah yeah kind of they're thank they're being thankful for a god so anyway the next one is called the serpent's dance that one is um god that is one heck of a freaking word to pronounce um it's oh please continue an, an old festival honoring a serpent god satakalam it's- Satakalam. Satakalam. Yeah. See, I even knew that. Right. I mean, gosh, come on. You're so good. You're Figure so good out. with words. Have you not listened to this show? Do I not pronounce things perfectly? <laughs> I mean, gosh, man. Can you catch up? And reality strikes. So anyway, uh, the serpent god of the homeland who evidently did not survive the journey to Hammerfell. So they're on this festival honors him. The significance of the date, the third of sun's dusk, November has been lost with the serpent priests. I sound like nice guys. Thanks for losing yeah, my book. Well, 
<laughs> you guys suck. You have one job. Hold the lore. Anyway. The next one is the Feast of the Dead. That's a festival held on the 13th of Sun's Dawn. That's February. In Windhelm. To honor Isgrimor and his 500 companions. Now, there's a story behind the 500 companions. Remember Isgrimor that I told you came over? All the way from Atmora with all of his followers? Yep. So, turns out they got turned back. They got kind of effed up. And they got turned back by the snow elves. <laughs> they jacked them. Ooh. So anyway, the 500 companions, simply called the 500, or the companions, were a group of Atmoran warriors led by the legendary Isgrimor in the late Marithic era. Now, the 500 companions were an army who played a vital role during the events of the time period known as the Return. That's when he came back. He got turned away, but he came back, and he was a pissed-off Nord. So, the 500 companions were fierce warriors who came from Atmora with Isgrimor. Their goal was to avenge the brothers and sisters who fell victims of elves during their raid known as the Night of Tears. During the festival, the names of the 500 companions are recited. We also did a lore lesson on that. We cover it, covered it in our uh, racial motif on the Nords. It is a really cool story. Really sad what happens in the Night of Tears when the elves come in and slaughter. That was jacked I up. I think it was, was it Solstein? I think it was Solstein. Yeah, uh, that was jacked it up. It was jacked up. They came in and slaughtered it. And the reason they the Nords originally thought that they came in just as to send a message like get the f off of our continent basically but it turns out that that the um, the village that they raided had a massive source of power underground in the crypts and that's what they were after really cool story so whether or not you celebrate thanksgiving or not we have a lot to be thankful for and I think that's kind of the culmination of this. My whole point behind all this. If you're listening to our podcast on the drive to work. If you're watching us on Twitch while you play ESO. Take some time to give thanks to whoever your deity may be. Because each and every one of us are really, really, truly blessed. No, this isn't the whiskey talking. This is troops. So for these reasons, and because we're so blessed to have these things and have these opportunities for us and our families, don't forget and be thankful for it. And enjoy your turkey day. Oh, that was, that was a little low. Maybe we should, should I do that again? That was a little, that was a little weak. That was... You know. All right. Well, let me get in a squat position before I All do right, it again. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you know, ready? Yeah. All right. Flex your legs. You know, do that nostrils thing you do whenever you like that nervous tick. Yeah. Are yeah, you ready? All right. Here we go. Oh, yeah. That oh, one had a little more zang on it. Yeah. yeah that was a, sounds more yeah. icy because it's, yeah. It's very new lifey. Yeah. Well, you know. So, speaking of completely non icy, let's go into the deep forests of Valenwood for this particular lore lesson, friends. Why? Because I love the Bosmer, and I always will. We're going to talk about Brackenleap's Briars today. This is one of my very favorite quest lines from uh, the Valen, Valenwood area in Grotwood. 
Deep in the forests of southeastern Grotwood, just north of Haven, a secluded grove is home to an order of Bosmeri hunters who have sworn to protect Brackenleaf. Now, Brackenleaf is a tree which is believed to have been planted by Euphrae, him or herself, during the creation of the world. Now, there are a couple quests in this region of Grotwood that revolve around Brackenleaf's briars. The first one is called Bosmer Insight, where you venture out on a spirit journey to learn the ways of the forest. And then there's Brackenleaf's briars itself. That quest is where you actually join the ranks of the order. Now, these quests take your character into a very, very primitive place and teach you all about Brackenleaf, the Bosmer lifestyle among the trees, and Euphrae's mark upon the world. Little fun fact. Who is Euphrae? Euphrae is the god of song and forest and the spirit of the now. Now, the most notable deity of the Bosmeri pantheon is Euphrae. One of the most powerful spirits to manifest shortly after the beginning of time, he or sometimes she, depending on how they choose to manifest, Euphrae paid a large part in the forming of the physical world during the Dawn Era. In Elder Scrolls lore, you will sometimes hear the term Elnafe. Now, what this means is the earth bones. And Euphrae was the first to transform him or herself into the Elnafe, which gave rise to the principles of nature and every living thing on Nern. But from this manifestation is the frame upon which nature itself is built. So back to Brackenleaf. In this particular settlement, you will find Erangor. This isn't game, friends. You can actually experience this, and this is why we're doing a lore lesson today on it, because I freaking love this questline. Erangor is a member of the Brackenleaf tribe. Now, he will task you with the quest Bosmer Insight, where you'll embark upon a short journey to learn the ways of the forest. He describes Black Brackenleaf as one of the first trees of Grotwood, and he says... When Euphrae told the tale that created the world, she planted her words in the ground and there grew Brackenleaf. The briars protect his heart and study the art of the hunt beside his roots. So if you choose, you'll take the quest and you'll be tasked with meeting Glarus, who is the leader of Brackenleaf's briars, who will then offer you the opportunity to attempt the trials to become a briar yourself. Now, this is considered, Brackenleaf's briars is considered an additional faction in Elder Scrolls Online. Now, Glarus will offer you this quest, and he will say, or she will say, I'm sorry, Glarus is a female. Joining Brackenleaf's briars is nothing to take lightly. Many have died attempting the trials, and there's always the threat of the outsider. The Outsider is the deathless enemy of Brackenleaf. It returns again and again to steal the heart of the Brackenleaf, only to be destroyed by the Briars. Now, it turns out that the tribe will accept anyone who wishes to attempt the trials. They consider anyone who passes the trials worthy of joining their tribe, and they make it clear that the trials do not distinguish between the races of Tamriel, nor do the Bosmer that live there. So as part of the trials, your character will be tasked with committing him or herself wholly to mind and body. 
the several tasks that you will be asked to take part in revolve around the spirit of the hunt. The snake, the wolf, and the tiger, you will confront and choose your animal spirit's predator. Now, one portion of the quest actually allows you to commune with the bracken leaf tree himself. And after successfully completing all the tasks, you will be offered a place among Brackenleaf's briars. Brackenleaf himself will say, The flame of my heart now resides within you. Carry it with honor and protect my forest with pride. Mm. A couple little fun facts here. Euphray is the basis surrounding the Green Pact. Now, we've done a lore lesson on this one before. I'll dive a little deeper in it here. This is an agreement between the Bosmer and the Green, which prohibited any harm to the plant life in Valenwood. In exchange for its protection, the Bosmer would be able to use the forest to shape itself to their needs. This is how the Bosmer are able to turn a tree into a home by the use of a ritualistic song. So you'll remember that the Bosmer cannot use or cut down or harm in any way any of the foliage or trees within Valenwood itself. Now they can import things from other regions, but Valenwood itself cannot be harmed. And just another quick little fun fact, the Bosmer importing wood from other regions was the reason for the five-year war, which started between the Khajiit and the Bosmer. I, we've covered that one before. I personally think that is the funniest effing war to ever happen in Tamriel. And it was literally because the Khajiit, being Khajiit, decided to totally F with the Bosmer over this, these, this wood that was coming in shipments from other regions. Freaking hilarious. Look up the five-year war or look it up on our website. It is hilarious. Anyway. And actually, that ends up being uh, the basis for Mixed Unit Tactics, which is a book that you will find in all of Elder Scrolls. It talks about the Five-Year War. Okay, back on track. Another fun fact. In addition, this part gets super gnarly. In addition to utilizing the forest for food and shelter, the Bosmeri Agreement with the Green, the Green Pact, has been known to allow the Wood Elves to explore their own chaotic origins through something known as the Wild Hunt. Now, this is a collective ritual causing the Bosmer to shapeshift into a horde of feral supernatural beasts. This is something that all Bosmer have the ability to do innately. Now, during a Wild Hunt, the transformed Bosmer will constantly change, change forms. They'll stampede, slay, and devour everything in their path. Now, only when there are no surviving targets, earmuff time for the kids, the beasts will turn upon themselves into a cannibalistic orgy. Actually sounds kind of cool. Anyway, this primal transformation is what? seen by the Bosmer... <laughs> As a return to their char- their chaotic nature of the Dawn Era, and it is very seldom utilized, usually only during a time of desperation, vengeance, or war. Super freaking dark. And green. Yeah. Anyway. 
So anyway, in my humble opinion, the quest of the Bracken Leaf brings about the very basis of the Bosmer, and it's why I love it so much. It's a primal instinct to protect the forest, protect its history, an undying respect that the Bosmer have for nature and in offering any outsider a place among them. Bosmer are very, very well known for their hospitality and acceptance of all races, which I think is freaking amazing. Now, despite the sometimes brutal reputation of the Bosmer, yeah, everybody knows that they have a tendency to consume their enemies, especially the ones who very closely follow the Green Pact. Yes, cannibalism is part of it. But they have a very warm and welcoming side. Now, the story of the Brackenleaf Briars really, really piqued my interest. And it amazes me that when we pay attention to the game and the quests and the stories that are told, there are life lessons that we can implement when we log off. And no, Mm. I'm not talking about the cannibalism part. Just the lessons itself when you can when you pay attention to it. Oh, that is good, buddy. Yeah. Oh. So anyway. Wow. There's that. Good lore lesson. There was a lot of happening behind that lore lesson while you were giving that, by the way. There was a... Uh, I'm sure there was, because I saw you laughing. I met your crap ton. It's kind of hard to come off that announcement. What, Vegas? Yeah. I know. I keep. To, I think about it every day now. Every single day. I get to hang out with some of the, our greatest friends from Zoss, yeah. meet yeah. friends, new friends and listeners, get to hang out with you, and we get to just freaking go to Vegas. Never been to Vegas, uh, and and see all of this. Like, there's just there's so much win here. There's so much win, you know. Corrupt your soul. B, please. <laughs> B. Please carry on. Yeah. You need to watch The Hangover. We need to watch The Hangover again. Oh, I've seen it about a billion times. I've seen it. Okay. You need to refresh your memory. This is my man purse. Yep. <laughs> oh, yep. Okay. Guys, I put some roofies in the shots. <laughs> <laughs> There's a freaking tiger in the bathroom. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh man, I really. Think not, I'm, I'm not going to roofie your drink. I promise, I will uh, not roofie your drink. I promise. I don't believe. I'm you. Promising chat. I, won't I legitimately do not believe you. <laughs> well, good. If I wake up in an alley, and my shoes are gone, and other things Alan, are gone, Alan, put on some pants. <laughs> I find it strange. I have to ask twice. <laughs> All right, I got to focus. Okay, put your focus face on. You ready? You're sh- Lore lesson 84. <laughs> Lore lesson 84, my friends. I'm trying to make it clean for when you got to cut this for the next Lore lesson compilation. So, oh. seriously, like, shut the fuck up right now. <laughs> <laughs> I might have been a little off with that. Wait, wait, Sorry, was kids. there a beep? I never heard one. Earmuffs. <laughs> This is what happened right. seven years after casting together. <laughs> Holy crap. All right. Oh. All right. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Lore Lesson 84, my friends. Tonight we are doing a an exclusive. This was actually requested. We are doing a lore lesson on the Ideal Masters, which turned out are incredibly interesting. And I'm going to show you why. 
Ruling over the mysterious realm of oblivion is a group of very pernicious beings known as the Ideal Masters. Claiming dominion over the Soul Cairn, these beings prefer to remain omnipresent as opposed to manifesting as actual physical beings. Instead, the Ideal Masters have been known to take on the form of a soul gem. Seemingly harmless, a soul gem can communicate with mortal beings and pursue the ultimate goal of the ideal masters to steal the very life essence of the mortal, eternally trapping them in the soul cairn. Now, the ideal masters sometimes manifest in one of these two forms. They can either manifest as a small red crystal, which you'll normally find resting inside a coffin, or as a giant pink crystal often found hovering above a structural ruin. Now, in these forms, they will drain the life essence of any approaching mortal. There's a little fun fact. What is the Soul Cairn? The Soul Cairn is a dark realm of oblivion filled with trapped souls of the dead. Now, when a soul is captured by a soul gem, it can be used to power an enchantment, as you all know, playing ESL. Now, the remnants of the soul are transported to the soul cairn to roam aimlessly for all eternity. Now, I just want to point out that I normally say that Jibs leaves during my lore lessons. If you're live in chat, look at his chair. It was empty. And I continue. Although the undead souls of oblivion view being trapped as a curse... The ideal masters view this as a very peaceful life in eternity. Now, they believe they're freeing the mortals of meaningless hardship and gifting them with peace. So the ideal masters all actually have individual names, but the names themselves have never been spoken. They instead call themselves the maker of the soul cairn, and they too were mortals at one time. They originated on Nern during the Merithic era. The ideal masters practiced necromancy with an early order of sorcerers. They spent a majority of their time collecting souls, and over time, they became very, very powerful. But their power grew so great, they found their physical forms to be weak and very limiting and not allowing them to fully take advantage of their place as soul merchants. So they eventually found a way and transcended their physical forms to become beings of pure soul energy. They entered oblivion and created the soul cairn. Now, what does the landscape in the soul cairn look like? It's dark, desolate, very, very barren land with scattered undead ruins, bones, and gravestones. Now, nothing is known to grow within the realm aside from dead trees and things known as soul husks, which are fungal structures that can be eaten as a source of food. Now, lightning strikes the ground of the soul cairn on a constant basis, and devices known as lightning attractors will absorb the energy and create black soul gems, of course, to trap more souls. Several structures also adorn the landscape of the Soul Cairn, including many burial structures and boneyards, one of which is called the Chapel of Love. It's a structure that contains the Emerald Gates, which are portals that can be used to teleport 
to other realms. A little fun fact. Soul husks growing within the soul cairn can be consumed and have been known to protect the imbiber's soul from being drained by the ideal master. It's one of the only things that can protect a mortal if they get stuck there from having their soul drained by the masters. Now, the soul cairn itself is inhabited by many, many different types of undead. The bone men are skeletal undead who serve as the ideal masters for eternity. They often manifest as ghostly skeletons. Mist men are ghostly undead with the ability to cast elemental, elemental or destruction magic. Wrath men are typically more powerful undead, sometimes adorned with armor and weapons, who roam the plains of the Soul Cairn under the control of the Ideal Masters. Now, the Ideal Masters sometimes make deals with necromancers. These necromancers are mortal, but they will provide them with souls in exchange for the ability of the necromancers to summon the armies of the undead. Sound familiar elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, some necromancers, however, will fall victim to the tricks of the ideal masters and end up trapped inside the soul cairn forever. And one very interesting and notable example of this is the deal with the ideal masters that was made by a dragon by the name of Dernavir, who fell to their deceit and became forever trapped in the eternity of the soul cairn. Fun fact, Dernavir was a powerful dragon who lived in the Merithic era. He took part in many battles against other dragons in an attempt to control the skies of Nern. Now, Dernavir began to practice forms of necromancy and actually contacted the Ideal Masters in an attempt to gain their favor. The Ideal Masters, in turn, granted Dernavir the power to summon armies of the undead from the Soul Cairn for his own use. But in exchange, he was charged with the protection of an immortal vampire by the name of Valerica. Now, Valerica was trapped within the Soul Cairn herself. And upon Dernavir's entrance to further protect her, Dernavir himself became bound to the eternal realm. He was deceived by the Ideal Masters and never again able to return to Tamriel. Now, the Ideal Masters also have other interests. They are very, very well known for hoarding treasures of all kind in their realm. Now, the undead minions and other powerful servants guard their treasures, including those called the Boneyard Keepers. And these towering servants herd imprisoned souls and drain their energy to maintain the barrier in front of the boneyard, which is where the ideal servants store many of their personal relics. Now, during the Imperial Simulacrum, Simulacrum, this is when uh, Jagger Thorn took the Imperial crown from Uriel Septum. So during that time, the Daedric Prince Mehrunes Dagon captured the Battle Spire and invaded the Soul Cairn. The Daedra's goal was to use the Soul Cairn as a way station between their own realms and the new realms they planned to conquer. Fun fact. The Battle Spire is a structure in between the realm of Oblivion and Mundus, 
that allows numerous realms in Oblivion to be accessed through the use of teleportals and void gates. This should sound very familiar to some of you if you played lots of games. Mm-hmm. So when the Daedra invaded, they killed many of the Ideal Master's servants and stole their treasures. And that tended to piss off the Ideal Servants, or the Ideal Masters. <laughs> but the invasion was eventually thwarted by an apprentice battle mage. That's you, the character. Who was instructed by one of the Ideal Masters on how to use the gates to freely pass between Oblivion and the Soul Cairn. The battle mage was able to halt the advance of the Daedra and call the invasion. So, Jibs and I both talked about it. This lore lesson was very, very interesting and something that we really haven't heard too much about. But it was like, got the idea? Yup, we're doing this one. It sounds really, really good. So, if you want to experience an appearance by the Ideal Masters yourself, you can find them in an Elder Scrolls Legend Battle Spire or in the Dawn Guard expansion for Elder Scrolls Skyrim. That was really interesting. Like, yeah, man, I wish we could have, we would have known about this during the Witches Festival. That'd been a good one to cover in the Witches Fest. It really would have been, but there, I mean, pretty much everything in Elder Scrolls you can cover during the Witches Festival because it's all super gnarly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is really, really good. Good job, man. That, uh, Thanks, buddy. Glad you liked it. Yeah. Honestly, until we got to Because you leave them out. Gosh, man. Because you podcast with them out. You shouldn't oh, do that. Man, my pants are on fire. 85 lore lessons, Duder. Shut the front door. No, you shut not. the front door. 85. I already did, and I locked it. Lore lessons. And how could I not? This was Jib's idea. How could I not talk about Blackreach tonight? Friends. Welcome to the freaking hype train. So we all saw the trailer. 2019, Dragonhold's closing out. Zoss is letting the cat out of the bag. We are going to Skyrim in 2020. Once that initial hype took a big deep breath, people started to speculate. Where in Skyrim are we headed? What zones are we going to be able to explore? Is it the whole map? Just a few regions? Is it going to come out systematically, periodically, throughout the year? We just don't know. So nobody's going to know until Vegas. Vegas is going to be an amazing event. We are going to be there. We are going to bring you the news. But there is some scuttlebutt around the Twitterverse when it comes to where we're going. A lot of people, which we didn't mention in our last little conversation that I had with Jibs, many people think part of where we're going is Blackreach. So now for you Skyrim players out there, you know exactly what this means. But tonight, for those who may not be familiar with it, we are going to take a little bit of a deeper delve, pun intended, into the immersive cavern located beneath the Pale. So what is the Pale? The Pale is located in the northern regions of Skyrim. It is one of four northern holds located in Skyrim, collectively known as the Old Holds. The Pale is a very barren realm covered by large areas of icy mountains and snowy pine forests. And the massive hold has a distinct boot shape that really follows the coastal mountain range. And it's bordered by Winterhold and the capital of Dawnstar. But beneath the surface of it all is a massive 
cavern system with a very insidious history. Black Reach is also known as Falzar Doom Din, and it's located beneath Winterhold in Skyrim. Its Dwemer name has a literal translation of the Blackest Kingdom Reaches, and was unsurprisingly originally settled by the Lost Race of Elves. What do you got? Hmm? Sound like you were going to say something? No, I was just, I was just, uh, Herping? Like, like a chuckling, like a hype chuckle. You know, like oh yeah, like one of those. Do you have reflux again? No, go ahead. I, oh well, thank you. All right. I was just getting excited. Don't mind me. Oh, okay. Sit on your hands. So Black Reach once served as a giant underground transportation system. Just a giant line of caves. Now, what it did was it connected some of the Dwemers' underground settlements and cities. The largest of those cities included Alftand, Mizinchaleft, Raltbar, and possibly Urkenthand. Adorned with massive lifts to provide a quick means to the surface, the underground transportation system built by the Dwemer was protected by mechanical centurions of various design. And many of those ingenious creations continue to actively protect the deep caverns of Blackreach to this day. Now, over the years, Blackreach has become an increasingly hostile environment. Down below, there are giants, frost trolls, Charis, Falmer, and Wisp Mothers. Falmer being a very, very interesting thing that we are looking forward to and hoping we're going to run into in the new content. Little fun fact here. Located in the Black Reach, the Tower of Mzark contained a device used to transfer the knowledge of an actual Elder Scroll onto a lexicon, allowing it to be read without consequences. We all know that reading the Elder Scrolls can cause deafness, blindness, and all kinds of physical ailments over time. Now, the lexicon is an ancient device created by the Dwemer, and it was a small black cube with a glowing red script used as a portable information repository. So moving on, in the heart of Blackreach lies the Silent City Catacombs, which is a small dwarven ruin that later became overrun with Falmer. Let's talk Falmer. As you may recall from one of our previous lore lessons, the one where we covered the Snow Elves, we talked to Falmer. And they largely inhabit Blackreach, the caverns of Blackreach, during the later periods of Skyrim's history, but they originated as the Snow Elves. Now, early in the First Era, the Snow Elves were seeking refuge from the invading Nords in the territory after the Snow Elves' leader was defeated. Now, the Dwemer had a plan, and they offered sanctuary to the population of fleeing Snow Elves in exchange for the agreement that the Snow Elves would consume a certain fungi that grew in the caverns of Blackreach. I have no idea, besides an overwhelming feeling of desperation, why the Snow Elves would have agreed to do this. Like, if I want to hide, like, hey, I'm running from my death. Can I hide in your house? Sure, as long as you take this pill. Does that not sound creepy AF to everybody else? Well, yeah. So imagine the desperation. They're like, fine, we'll do whatever you can. <laughs> do whatever you want. Right. So the Snow Elves agreed. And the decision proved to be in vain because the fungi would render the Snow Elves blind over time. 
Now, the blinded race of snow elves were deceived by the Dwemer and doomed to a life of slavery within the vast underground kingdom. So the snow elves would devolve into the Falmer. They were blind, corrupted descendants of the ancient race of snow elves. Which sucks for us, because now we can't play the snow elf race. Right. So they eventually, the Falmer would rebel against the Dwemer. And that would spark something called the War of the Crag, which was fought between the Falmer and the Dwemer for many decades during the mid to late first era. Now, when the Dwemer disappeared for very mysterious reasons in the first era year 700, the Falmer took over the underground landscape of Blackreach. It should still be the same. There still should be Falmer everywhere under Skyrim, which is why we are chomping at the bit to find out if we're going to Blackreach. So using the cavernous wildlife, the Falmer eventually were able to create primitive settlements spread throughout the subterranean system. Now, for many centuries, the cavern and the Falmer remained largely unknown to the surface dwellers of Tamriel. They had no clue of the war raging beneath them and the amount of life that was taking place down there. Now, an adventurer by the name of Obeth Arnesian was among the first to rediscover the Black Reach during the Second Era. This is the timeline of ESO. It was rumored that an Aldmeri Dominion scout also accidentally fell down a shaft, that's what she said, and discovered himself in Black Reach sometime during the Alliance War. So the scout who was lost and starving consumed a Charis, and we mentioned them above. Charis is a large hostile insect found in the caves beneath Skyrim. If you played Skyrim, you'll know what these damn things are. But the scout who consumed the Charis unwittingly ate an ancient soul gem. Jibs, pay attention. This gets super interesting. Uh, okay. After eating... Thanks for being super enthusiastic about my lore lesson. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm sorry. That was my thinking voice. That was your dumb voice. Thanks for being dumb. It'll get more interesting. (laughs) After consuming the soul gem, the scout gained mysterious powers, which very intriguingly allowed him to tinker with machinery. Using this new knowledge, he managed to repair one of the great lifts in Blackreach and ascended back to the surface, never to return again to the cavernous depths. We all know what soul gems consume. The soul and the story and the knowledge of the soul it consumes. This dude ate a soul gem that the insect ate, or possibly the being that the insect ate, had a soul gem with Dwemer smarts in it. And this guy consumed it and gained mysterious freaking powers. That is such a kick-ass story. (laughs) Like, oh my god. (laughs) That is so awesome. And he became a tinker. I thought you would be mentally aroused by the the word tinker. Hmm. So there's that. Absolutely. I gave you a mental boner. <laughs> so gross. Wow. Anyway, fun fact. Blackreach is the only location in Tamriel known to grow crimson nernroot, 
which is prized for its rarity and its use in alchemical recipes. Now, crimson nern root is a variant of the surface-dwelling cousin known as common nern root. So the specimen of this rare ancient growth of crimson nern root can be found in the vaults of the Aldmeri Dominion in the city of Marbrook. Another fun fact for you. At one time, Blackreach also served as a lair for the dragon Verithyal. Verthurial. What? Volthurial. Sound it out. There you go. Nice and slow. Volthurial, who is confronted who is confronted by the Dragonborn hero in the fourth area year 201. Yes, my friends, that is part of Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. So regardless of what areas of Skyrim will be available to us in Elder Scrolls in 2020, Blackreach remains one of the most interesting and historic areas of the snowy region in Elder Scrolls history. There's so much freaking history there. Now, we, I'm sure Jibs and I, in our conversations, are certainly hopeful that Blackreach becomes one of the new areas that we can explore and discover. The speculation of the area becoming part of the chapter has sparked both Jibs and I to dive back into Skyrim again, <laughs> just to get a glimpse of what may lie ahead. Now, this is not the end of our speculation. We're going to continue this as we approach the event and the new content available to us in 2020. Oh, yeah. I still couldn't believe it when I looked at the number. Lore lesson number 86. We are quickly encroaching on a hundred lore lessons, my friends. Yeah, buddy. A hundred lore lessons. When we get there, we got to do something super special. Like have the lore master on? You shut up. Layman. 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 Can you come out and play? He doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> oh my God, dude. I would faint like a fanboy. Layman. I know. All right. I'm going to call Layman. I'll be right back. Maybe just get a sound bite of him saying, Lore Seekers, you guys don't know about lore. <laughs> <laughs> He'll forget more lore than oh. we will ever know. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. It actually would be pretty funny. But, okay, friends. So this one was really interesting because there's a reason that this next lore lesson was born. Now, as we have recently learned in 2020, Elder Scrolls Online is going to take us to the northern regions of Skyrim. Now, once that got announced and after everybody was done squeeing about it, all the speculation started. People started brainstorming about exactly where in Skyrim we would be going. Now, in the wake of all the speculation, a lot of content creators and some other prominent members of the ESO community received some very cryptic maps from Zenimax Online in the mail. Now, these maps teased us. And really what ended up happening is people really started putting on their thinking caps to try and decipher the mysterious script that was on the maps. And we were no different. Now we were a little bit late to the party, but we ended up doing, well, we had the holiday and all that stuff and family and all that stuff. Anyway, four different maps were sent out. I'm sure if you're, if you're on Twitter, you've seen them. Jibs and I both got a map. We got the same map though. So we were only able to decipher in front of us the stuff that was on our own personal map. 
but by looking at social media, we were able to see the other maps too and try and kind of decipher some of that stuff. Anyway, I fell in love with this approach. I'm like, okay, this was really smart marketing for them. Because not only did it build hype from for the content creators, but it brought about the spirit of the community amongst not just content creators, but the community as a whole, where everybody was sharing photos of the maps that they got. They were sharing the photos of the maps that they got with the community at large. And then everybody was trying to decipher what everything meant. So it really kind of brought people together. And I, I just loved that approach. So once we were finally able to sit down and dive into our own maps, we were able to figure out some of the stuff that was some people had already figured it out. We wanted to figure it out on our own. So anyway, we're going to bring you the juicy, juicy information right now. Yeah. So I had a Daedric text key in my hand and I had my, my iPad was up and had some different pages on there and everything. And I was trying to translate the Daedric text that was inscribed on the maps that Jibs and I got. It was not easy. And the reason being was because the actual printing of the map was on, it was on canvas. It was like, it felt like a real map. It was a really cool uh, material for this to be printed on. And I think what they were trying to do is they were really trying to like send you something that, that felt, felt and looked like it was an old parchment. Like an actual adventure had taken notes within the within the game, and then that's what you received, this relic from them. So the four maps that were sent to uh, the content creators and social media influencers became affectionately known as the Urn, the Tree, the Skull, and the Totem. Now, on the maps, there were lots and lots of different letters written in Daedric script. Some of it we were able to translate. Other stuff, it was just unintelligible, and we weren't able to translate it. But from what we were able to gather in our own translation and then what the community as a whole was able to translate was the following. These are all of the lines that were written. The first one said, death is not but a fitful sleep. Written in Daedric. The next line said, like all urns, it bears the dead. Another one read, let it blank. That part was kind of unintelligible. But let it blank end the world. The next one says, led from the boughs, both gnarled and black. May they reap a great harvest. There was also a script that read simply, terror. And then this is the one that kind of, it literally gave me chills. Death for the living, life for the dead. Those are the lines that were transcribed on the maps that we were able to decipher between all the content creators. So above and beyond all the Daedric script or whatever they end up meaning, the drawings on the maps were very, very interesting. A lot of the drawings were very rough drawings of like primitive banners, primitive looking totems with all these sprigs of sticks and branches hanging out of them. Now, there was a very, very obvious, heavy focus on nature and trees 
in the map images, leading a lot of us to believe that there was content revolving around some kind of tribal nature, some kind of some type of a tribal culture, or the threat of some sort in Skyrim. So a lot of the speculation to the origins of where all of this came from and what this actually means led a lot of the community members and content creators to believe that the Reachmen may have a role in the upcoming chapter of ESO. So tonight, we would be remiss if we did not cover the Reachmen. Woo! Yes. I think a lot of this is a surprise to you, Jibs, because I, I remember like you had a small part in this and then I kind of just shut up. <laughs> no, but I shut up after this because like, I, I wanted it to be a surprise for you too. So hopefully you didn't read this before the show. Well, I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Well, that was mean and judgmental, but I'm, that's fine. I'm just good. <laughs> anyway, let's talk. Go <laughs> Uh, if any of you have played Skyrim, you're surely going to know who it is. And the Reachmen do make an appearance in Elder Scrolls Online already. But a tribal society of mostly Breton descent, the Reachmen are also known as the Witchmen of High Rock. The Reachmen inhabit the Reach in southwestern Skyrim. And those Reachmen who are not of Breton descent have been known to span across all of the races of Tamriel, not just the Breton. Now, the culture of the Reachmen is quite primitive and very tribal, and they do not consider themselves of any other descent. They consider themselves Reachmen. Now, for many years, the Reachmen have considered themselves the true owners of the Reach, even though there's been a major conflict throughout the years for control of the, of the territory. But the Reachmen have reluctantly accepted the rule of the Nords and the Empire from time to time. Now, I say reluctantly. They were not happy about it. Here's a little fun fact for you. The Reach itself, the territory, is the region to the north surrounded by High Rock, Skyrim, and Hammerfell. Now, control of the territory has changed hands over the years, from the Nords to the Cyrodiilics and even the Reachmen themselves. It's not clear who initially inhabited the Reach. It was possibly considered to be the Needs or the Aldmer. But it is said that the first race to invade the Reach was the earliest of the Atmoran people to settle in, Tam- in Tamriel, and those, of course, of the Nords. Now, during the earliest times of their history in the territory, the Reachmen were thought to be friendly with the Orcish neighbors and to have actually learned to use hedge magic from the Orcs. Here's another little fun fact for you. An ancient tale of folklore from the Reach called the Legend of Red Eagle, told the time of the Alessian Empire where the Reach was ruled by ten separate societies of Reachmen, ruled by ten different kings. Now, these factions warred against each other quite frequently. Moving on, during the Second Era, the Reachmen found themselves growing in power, and they eventually founded a dynasty known as the Longhouse Emperors. A lot of speculation around the Longhouse Emperors and the upcoming content in Skyrim. Now, the Longhouse Emperors would eventually seize the Ruby Throne in Cyrodiil 
and rule the entirety of Cyrodiil for several decades during the Interregnum. You'll remember that the Interregnum is the period between the end of the Second Empire and the proclamation of the Third Empire, which was made by Tiber Septim himself. Now, back during the timeline of ESO, Second Era, year 541, the first Longhouse Emperor by the name of Durkarak the Black Drake invades Hyrock. He also invades Bankerai, Evermore, and Halland's Stand, taking control of each region. Now, the continuing conquest between the Reachman armies against the fortress of Wayrest without siege engines to power their play. So the Reachman armies eventually abandoned the siege at Wayrest, and they moved on to take the new independent city-state of Camlorn. Now, this is where they were thwarted by King Emric's heavy dragoons. King King Emric actually slain Durkarok the Black Drake. Killed him by his own hand. So the Longhouse Emperor's dynasty would still continue to rule in Cyrodiil. However, until its leader, Leovic, which happened to be Durkarok's grandson, was overthrown by the Duke of Coral, Varen Aquilarius. Sound familiar? Leovic had legalized the worship of Daedra within the Empire, which angered many of its constituents. Now, after Leovic's defeat, the dynasty of the Longhouse Emperors finally ended. Now, not long after all that took place, the soul burst would occur in Tamriel, and that would be Second Era 543. The Reachmen, however, forged on, and many decided to become followers of Molag Ball. Now, they continued to launch little skirmishes against the Ebonheart Pact and the Daggerfall Covenant in the territories, even as far-reaching as the Rift and Glenumbra. And of course, this is all stuff that you can play through in ESO right now. Here's another little fun fact for you. One Reachman, one Reachman clan, was so deep-seated in a bloody conflict with the Orcs over control of the Rothgar territories. They were known as the Winterborn. Now, they ended their conflict with the orcs upon their leader's death at Frostbeak Fortress in the Second Era, year 579. So the Reachmen would continue to forge ahead, and they allied with whoever they found it convenient. However, they always maintained their independence from outside rule. They never truly took rule from anybody other than the Reachmen. Now, late in the Second Era, they would ally with the Second Aldmeri Dominion and continue to fight against the Nords. This conflict was abruptly ended in Second Era, year 582, during the Battle of Old Proldon. The Nords had pushed the Reachmen into the ancient city, where they tried desperately to fortify their position. Now, the Imperials pushed on, with one particular general becoming a legend. You guys have heard it before. We've told this story. General Talos was said to have shouted down the gates of old Roldan with his breath. The Nord and Colovian armies followed his lead and retook the city with ease. Soon after, Imperial propaganda would brand the Reachmen as rebellious and lawless mongrels. 
So continuing on, early in the fourth era, the empire lacked the resources to control and maintain the outer provinces. A group of reachmen, led by Madnak, a king in rags, gained control of the reach and created their own independent kingdom in what would become known as the Forsworn Uprising. The reachmen attempted to rule with peace. Now this approach seemed to work, and the reachmen again began to gain the recognition from the empire as a legitimate kingdom. However, the Nords wouldn't fully relent. In the fourth era, year, year 178, Skyrim accepted the assistance of a Nord militia led by Ulfric Stormcloak in hopes of regaining control of the Reach. This should sound very familiar for your Skyrim player. Now, the Nord militia successfully routed the Reachmen from the city of Markarth and regained the Reach. The Reachmen survivors fled into the wilds of the Reach and hence became known as the Forsworn. Now, that's where we're going to end this particular lore lesson because Skyrim has an incredible history. Now, I definitely want to credit my sources on this because not all of the speculation that the Reachmen are going to be part of the upcoming chapter in Elder Scrolls Online was my own thought. Trust me, a lot of this stuff is super cryptic. So through studying the teaser maps that we received, massive shout out to uh, UESP, the unofficial Elder Scrolls Online pages. They have a great episode of their podcast that you should go listen to. It's on Twitch. It's called The Dark Heart of Speculation. It is some outstanding Elder Scrolls lore minds talking about the inscriptions on these maps. Go listen or watch that show. It's very, very good. Uh, of course, the good old Daedric script key itself helped me encrypt some of the stuff. The Elder Scrolls Online Reddit. And then, of course, the Elder Scrolls Online community forums. Go to those sources. They're really, really good. And help, and help me get through a lot of the stuff this week because this was a really tough one to delve into that my friend was really good oh got them both Woo. no you didn't you missed got them both that was the fl- that was the extra room in the pants all right my friends, tonight we are going to talk about uh, a place that a lot of us have been, especially if you like the snowy regions in Elder Scrolls V. There's a little place located in one of the nine major cities of Skyrim by the name of the College of Winterhold. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, this is a very renowned school of magic. So if you've played Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. You've definitely been here. If you had some magical prowess, you may have even been able to cross the bridge and get into the College of Winterhold, which is amazing. I was actually telling Jibs that I I fired Skyrim back up again the other day when I was going through the creation of this lore lesson because I I literally just wanted to see it again. So I fired it up, across the bridge I go, all throughout the buildings, and it was just super, super cool. I really did uh, enjoy doing that. But that very iconic narrow stone bridge is a main way to get to the College of Winterhold. Now, there's a reason why, and we're going to talk about that coming up here too. But much like 
the mages guilds uh or the mages guild in tamriel the college of winterhold was said to be founded by the legendary mage shalador so basically what i'm trying to say there is the college of winterhold functions very much like the mages guild but um the college itself was founded by shalador now he was an archmage very, very powerful wizard from the first era, and he was well known for his unmatched skill and knowledge in, art, in the arcane arts. And among many other legends that were told of Shalador's life, he was said to have built the entire city of Winterhold, not just the college, but the entire city, with a whispered spell. Now, of course, just like anything else in Tamriel, a lot of people believed it to be true, and a lot of people said that it was hogwash and fabrication. Here's your first fun fact for this lore lesson. In the fourth era, year 122, a major disaster would hit the city of Winterholt. This is alluding back to what I was talking about with that very iconic narrow stone bridge that you enter the college through. Now, the nearby Sea of Ghosts pounded the coastline with unusually massive waves, and it destroyed the uh, entire districts of the city. Now, the landscape was eroded and the city eventually collapsed into the sea, except for a few things. The Jarl's Longhouse survived, which was in the city proper, a few scattered buildings within the city, and the College of Winterhold. All survived. Now, the College of Winterhold survived, it was said, because of a magical type of protection. But because the college was one of the only structures to have survived the disaster, many Nords, especially the local Nords who lost a lot, believed that it was the members of the college themselves who were involved in creating the disaster, or at least they could have prevented it. Now, getting back to the college, probably the most famous location at the college is called the Hall of Elements, which represents all disciplines of magic. When I say all, I mean it. There's the Arcanium Library, the Archmage's Quarters, and student faculty housing, which are all located in a separate building. But perhaps the most mysterious location of the College of Winterhold is the Midden, which is located under the campus which is said to house many secrets of the college's history. Now, the selection of students at the College of Winterhold is very notoriously selective. So you have to prove yourself through your magical affinities before they will even allow you admittance into the college. But once you have proven yourself and you're admitted to the college students are allowed much more flexibility in their experimentation with the magical arts, which is a very different approach from the Mages Guild. In fact, the art of necromancy is celebrated, studied, and very, very well accepted at the College like of Winterhold. Mm. Yep. Very cool. Fun fact. In the Third Era some sort of a destruction in the East, quote unquote, caused a great deal of literary works to be transported and housed at the College of Winterhold. The Yzmir Collective 
is what it's known. And it became a very, very widely popular attraction for scholars and academics who traveled far and wide to the College of Winterhold to study its contents. Now, I dug and dug and dug to find out what that quote-unquote destruction in the East could have possibly been that would have caused those literary works to be saved and brought to the College of Winterhold. All that I could find was speculation. So I'm not even going to cover it. But that's just one of the points of Elder Scrolls that I absolutely love. There are pieces of history everywhere where there's no answer. It's just left to mystery and speculation. I love it. Okay. So after the dissolution of the Mages Guild during the Oblivion Crisis the College of Winterhold remained very prominent. It also remained very neutral in the province of Skyrim. Now, although some of the local Nords remained very skeptical of the magic practice there and whether or not the college itself had something to do with the great collapse of the city of Winterhold, the college maintained that they had absolutely nothing to do with the disaster. Instead, the way they explained it was that the college remained intact during the collapse because of an ancient magical protection that just wasn't afforded to the surrounding city. Sounds like a, that sounds like a government cover up. That sounds like a super douchey move. Yeah, it does. You know what they did. We know what they did. Yep. I'm so sorry. House burned down, but mine's made of stone. Mine's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the college would continue to face trials and scrutiny from the likes of the Thalmor later in history. And then much of its magical history and even many of its mages would be lost in this conflict between Thalmor and the college. Now, during the fourth era, the college was weakened and dedicated many of its efforts to actually preserving what remained. And they focused on passing down its surviving knowledge to new magical practitioners. Wish the Dark Brotherhood would have done that. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. So in the fourth era, year 201... The College of Winterhold discovered something very curious in the ruins of Sarthal. Now, Sarthal was the first city to be constructed by the Nords who arrived from their homeland of Atmora. Love this story. Love it. You're going to like this, Jibs. Pay attention. Okay. The Eye of Magnus was a powerful artifact of unknown origin that was unearthed after centuries of being hidden beneath the city of Sarthal. Now, the artifact had immeasurable power and was transported to the college for examination. Now, remember, this is in the fourth era when they finally found the Eye of Magnus. So, the discovery of the artifact was so significant that the that certain members of the Sigic Order, remember how shifty they are. Like, if they don't like something, they're like, we're out. Yeah. And their entire Artaeum just disappears. Their entire island in the sky disappears. <laughs> like, you, we are done with you people until the you do something wrong, and we'll come back and tell you about it. Yeah. So anyway, the Sigic Order is known for doing that. They're, they're out. Like, they are gone until they need to come back to Tamriel and they need to advise on an issue. And then all of a sudden, Artam shows back up, and here's the Sigic Order. So that's exactly what happened here. They were gone for a long, long time. 
But then the Eye of Magnus is discovered under Sarthal. And guess who shows back up? Blamo. Sigic Order. It came back to advise some of the biggest leaders in Tamriel on its dangers. Now, the Eye of Magnus could be manipulated with something called the Staff of Magnus, which was very, very much believed to have belonged to the God of Magic himself. Ooh. <laughs> what? You sit yeah. on a heating pad or something? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Too hot, turn it down. <laughs> uh, fun fact. A Thalmor advisor to the College of Winterhold by the name of Ankeno, you guys remember him from Skyrim, attempted to tap into the power of the Eye of Magnus. He was killed in the attempt. His attempt cost the lives of many of the senior college's faculty in the process. Well, what who's going to teach my child? Anyway. What? Can we get a substitute? Can we get rigored for a sub, please? Oh, my God. <laughs> People, there would be mass death. I'm going accidents. back home to the college. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to teach the children. <laughs> going to be... <laughs> oh, God. Don't let him teach our youth, please. Oh. Okay, so I'm not done. I got I to tell you the story. All right, finish. So finish. in a previous I mean, lore lesson, we talked about the, str- the struggle for the discovery of the Eye of Magnus between the settling Nords and the Snow Elves way back in the Marithic era. Mm-hmm. So the way this worked, during the city's original construction, the Eye of Magnus was discovered by the Nords under the leadership of Isgrimor. Now, he was the leader of the very first Nords to land on the shores of Skyrim from their homeland of Atmora. Now, they had a conflict with the Snow Elves, and when the Snow Elves learned of the discovery of the powerful relic, they launched an attack on Sarthal to secure it. Now, this infamous attack was known as the Night of Tears, where the entire village of, Sarth- of Sarthal was decimated, and the Nords mostly were killed with the exception of Isgrimor and his two sons. Now, they were overly defeated, just crushed. So they got on a boat, they fled Skyrim, and headed back to Atmora. But when they returned, they had a group of friends with them known as the 500 Companions. And they launched a surprise attack on the Snow Elves while the Snow Elves were pillaging... And the Snow Elves were still trying to discover the location of the Eye of Magnus. They were not expecting the attack from the 500 Companions. And the Nords drove them out of Sarthal. And their plan was to drive them from Skyrim altogether. Now you'll remember that we talked about the conflict that went on between the Snow Elves and the Nords. And the Nords drove them so far that the Snow Elves were forced to go underground in desperation where they landed right in the hands of the Dwemer. (laughs) Oh, that's good. So do you see how all these stories intertwine? And then, of course, a few lore lessons ago, we talked about what actually happened with the Dwemer. So we'll go Uh over it again real quick. The Dwemer were approached by the Snow Elves because they were trying to flee from the Nords. The Nords were going to wipe them off the face of Tamriel. Deserved. Yes, deserved for after what they did in the Night of Tears. And it also shows don't F with the Nords. Breach it. They're gnarly. So 
Anyway, the snow elves were driven underground and pleaded with the Dwemer for help. And the Dwemer saw an opportunity and said, we will help you. But first, you will need to consume this special mushroom. (laughs) And remember, we talked about the desperation level that the snow elves must have been in in order to say, okay, I'll eat the mushroom. That's yeah, man. Like you don't eat some, you know, when someone gives you a, a condition like that, you don't eat it. No, it's like. I think I'll risk it up above. (laughs) See you guys. (laughs) So anyway, what ended up happening is that over time, after eating these mushrooms, the snow elves slowly became blind. And once they were blinded, the Dwemer enacted their plan and turned them into slaves. And they went back and forth. The Dwemer, uh, the snow elves, eventually over years and years and years, eventually um, rebelled and they went toe-to-toe with the Dwemer and uh, they had been so devolved, the Snow Elves had devolved so much that they became the Falmer that you know of in the underground areas of Skyrim and particularly Elder Scrolls V when you play Skyrim. So it's cool yeah. lore and yeah, all this it's... lore intertwines. It's yeah. it's insane. I am a huge, huge fan. Like, there's the Dwemer, and then my other passion in Elder Scrolls is the Arcane. And everything surrounded by it. So when we talk about the College of Winterhold, you know, I'm just like, right. all ears. And so, you know, and then talking about the Nords handling their business. Like, look, yeah. Cash may have picked yellow and white in the game, but at the end of the day, we all bleed red. <laughs> Oh, sorry, my finger slipped. <laughs> I hit that button with my middle uh, finger, just so you know. Oh, well, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> come on, but, uh, man, anyway. don't disparage the yellow. Come on, man, that was a great lore lesson. Well done, buddy. That was... Thanks, I thought you liked that. Shit. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I can't wait, man. So many exciting things coming up with Skyrim. I... I'm very excited about this lore lesson because I have a crazy theory and I'm going to explain why I have a crazy theory in this lore lesson. Now, I already know that we've covered vampires in a previous lore lesson. I think it was lore lesson 30. I know it was lore lesson 30. We even detailed a certain clan of vampires that were called the Kirill vampires and even told you how to become a vampire in Elder Scrolls Online. That was Lore Lesson 31. But this one is going to be a little bit different. Now, following the massive hype train that's coming out of ESO Vegas this past week, and then the bloody thinged, pale skinned, afflicted being a part of the big reveal of the next chapter of ESO, we figured that being in the cold regions of Skyrim... We're going to explore the homeland of the Nords above and below the surface. The insidious vampire lords seeking to take over the entirety of Tamriel. Why would we not detail one of the most notorious vampire clans in all of Tamriel known as the Volkiar clan who just happened to make their home in the very mountainous regions of Skyrim that we are going to be exploring? 
Let's talk a little bit about them because very interesting. And then I'm going to hit my theory, my friends. The vampires of the Volkiar clan inhabit the eastern regions of the territory and are quite surprisingly making their home under the surface of remote and haunted frozen lakes. The Volkiar clan is the oldest known vampire coven in all of Tamriel. Now, sometimes not coming out of their dens except to feed, they are known to possess a powerful icy breath attack which will freeze their victim's blood within their veins. Now, Volkial vampires have the ability to reach through the thick ice walls of a lake without even breaking it to snatch an unsuspecting surface-dwelling victim. Some of the members of the Volkial coven may appear more monstrous than others. Some are adorned with a very pronounced brow ridge, slits that run vertically down their mouth, and lips and noses that resemble that of a bat. Now, this specialized form of Volkiar vampire has very unique powers above and beyond their counterparts. In addition to some of the more basic vampire abilities, such as night vision and, invi- and invisibility and the ability to seduce their victims, these specialized Volkiar vampire morphs can also reanimate the dead, and when they're introduced to rays of the sun, they do not burn. Here's a little fun fact here. Now, pay attention. Some of the more ancient vampires of the Volkiar coven, coven, specifically those who are part of the court at Castle Volkiar, have the ability to transform into large winged vampire lords. This is considered to be a gift from the father of vampires, Molag Ball himself. Now, you'll remember our lore lesson on Molag Ball. He is the father of vampires. Now, these particular Volkiar vampire lords are tall. They're humanoid looking. They're bat-like. And they have poisonous talons and wings. Now, becoming a vampire lord also gives them the ability to summon gargoyles, use magic such as mist form, and sometimes even to transform themselves into a cloud of bats to pass through small areas. Da, da, da. <laughs> Jim's is paying attention. Thank you, sir. Yes. You're there are some similarities that I'm going to be talking about in this lore lesson that is going to hearken to my theory. The founders of the Volkihar Coven are a Nord family led by Lord Harkon. Lord Harkon was a wealthy Nordic king who had a very severe fear of death. So Lord Harkon made a selfish pact with Molag Ball himself, where he and his family would become immortal vampires in exchange for the sacrifice of a thousand innocent souls to the Daedric Lord. That is gnarly how somebody could sacrifice others for immortality. For them and their family. It's another, it's another day of Sith life right there. Gnarly. So Harkon and his family were inflicted with the purest form of vampirism known, which is given only by Molag Ball himself. So here's a little fun fact about the bloodline. Members of the Volkiar bloodline are infected with Sanguinaire Vampiris, as opposed to the most common form of, vampire, of vampiric disease, 
which is known as porphyrochemophilia. Sanguinaris, wait, Sanguinari vampiris is more prevalent in the Skyrim territories and is known for only having a three-day incubation period after which the afflicted will die and become undead. Now we're going to talk about an ancient prophecy. And this is where my theory is going to come into play. There's an ancient prophecy called the Tyranny of the Sun. It was written early in the First Era. The Tyranny of the Sun foretold of a time where the sun in the sky would be vanquished and Tamriel would fall unto darkness. The prophecy was written by somebody named Archcurate Virthur of the Chantry of Ariel, and it greatly interested Lord Harkon. The vampire lord dreamed of a world in darkness where vampires could roam free without fear of the sun. Here's another little fun fact. The creator of the tyranny of the sun prophecy, Archcurate Virthur of the Chantry of Ariel, was inflicted with vampirism by an initiate of the Chantry. Now, he felt very betrayed that Ariel would allow such a, a curse upon him and not help him. So, Virther sought his revenge and created the prophecy which foretold of the sun being blotted from the sky. With the sun covered for all eternity, the connection between Aetherius, the plane of the gods, and Mundus would be forever broken. Whereas Ariel would never have influence on Nern again. And that's what the Archcurate wanted as his revenge. So back to Lord Harkon. He first discovered this ancient prophecy when he uncovered some writings from actual moth priests who had read from three separate Elder Scrolls. And when he learned of the possibility of plunging the world into darkness without the sun, Lord Harkon went, hmm, this seems to be like a good thing to get obsessed about. So he did. So the tyranny of the sun was foretold to come to pass when Ariel's bow loosed an arrow soaked in the blood of a daughter of Cold Harbor into the sun itself. So, three things. Ariel's bow had to be acquired. An arrow from the bow, from the quiver of the bow, had to be soaked in the blood of a daughter of Cold Harbor, and then that arrow had to be shot into the sun. And part of the prophecy reads, quote, The blood of Cold Harbor's daughter will blind the eye of the dragon. So now let's talk about what a daughter of Cold Harbor actually is. Needed to fulfill the prophecy, the daughter of Cold Harbor is a female granted with vampirism through a ritual with the creator's patron deity of vampire Molag Ball himself. So this is Molag Ball directly afflicting a female with vampirism. That is the most pure form of vampirism there is. So Lord Harkon's own daughter, Serana, became a candidate the blood sacrifice because she was a daughter of Cold Harbor. So, hearing of these plans, Lord Harkon's wife, her name was Valerica, she said, hell no you won't. So she prevented her husband from achieving this ultimate goal and he fled, as she fled with Serana, sealing her away in a crypt. Now don't forget, these are vampires. They are immortal. 
So Lord Harkon searched in vain for his wife and his daughter for centuries, ultimately finding his demise at the hands of the Dovahkiin and Serana herself in the Fourth Era. Yes, you play the Dovahkiin, in case you didn't know. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> okay, so fun fact here. Lord Harkon's search for his estranged wife and daughter intensified greatly over the centuries. But so did the boldness of the Volkihar vampire clan. Vampiric raids on major cities in Skyrim became more frequent, way more deadly. And in response to this outward aggression toward the citizens of Skyrim, the ancient order of vampire hunters known as the Dawnguard was reformed. Let's talk about the Dawnguard and its origins. The origins of the Dawnguard trace back to the middle of the Second Era, where the Dawnguard was actually formed from the original guards of a prison known as Fort Dawnguard. Now, this prison was formed, and these guards were put in place to house the son of the Jarl of Riften, who had become afflicted with vampirism. Eventually, the guards of the prison were forced to kill the Jarl's son, who had grown too powerful. Now, the Jarl was pissed, so he took the guards of the prison and banished them from the rift because they killed his son. But they continued to hunt vampires across the land. It just kind of came their thing, and the Dawn Guard was born. Now, this original Dawn Guard was known to hunt with silver-tipped crossbows, but they would eventually dwindle their numbers and become relatively rare. It was rumored that actually the entirety of the famed group was inflicted with vampirism as a result of their legendary vampire hunts. And they were said to have stalked the rift as the, as the afflicted until they were eventually all destroyed. So here's the question. No names have been given about who this vampire lord is. Who is the vampire lord that's going to be introduced in the storyline of ESO? My personal thought is that Lord Harkon is returning and the Volkiar clan is going to be the clan of vampires that we get to see. That is my personal thought. I could be a thousand percent wrong, but there's a lot of things that speak to the darkness falling across the land. So could it be that this devious plot to fulfill the ancient prophecy, prophecy of the tyranny of the sun is what we're going to experience? Or is it some other vampire lord with some other insidious plan? We don't know, but we're going to find out in the spring. Oh, that's something to think about. Yeah. It, it would be a younger Harkin, which would kind of make sense from the trailer. Vampire lord. Yeah. I guess another vampire lord looks a little different than Skyrim, but that being said, yeah. I boy, wouldn't that be interesting? It would be very interesting other than the fact that we probably couldn't vanquish him because then that would break lore for the fourth era, but Exactly. Still, I mean, the Volkiar clan, oh, that would work. They're yeah. freaking badasses of all zo- or of all zombies. They're badasses of all vampires, yeah. so I would absolutely love it. Well, when a humble bar graced a ride along with jibs and cash, along came this song. From when the arrows flew 
across the golden sands. Saved by the bosman, they took outstretched hands. They survived the sea, elves all around their feet. Filled Guar with loot and took to the streets. While the bosman led their party through the trees. Jibs and cash smile, this would be a breeze. I love this. Toss a coin to Lorsica's, oh Queen of Aldmeri, oh Queen of Aldmeri, oh. Toss a coin to Lorsica's, oh Queen of Aldmeri. All across Tamriel, fight the dragon horde with arrows and spellcasts. Watch out for their horns. Chips gave out a cry as lightning filled the sky. His magic engulfed them. They fell down to earth. Cash whipped out his staff. They gave a mighty laugh. Let loose an inferno and wrote their epitaph. That's my epic tale. Our champions prevailed. Defeated the Daedra. Now pour them some mail. Toss a coin to Lorsica's. Oh, Queen of Valmeri. Oh, Queen of Valmeri. Oh. Toss a coin to Lorsica's. Oh, Queen of Valmeri. Oh, Queen of Valmeri. Oh. Toss a coin to Lorsica's. Oh, Queen of Valmeri. I took the let's drink and be merry part pretty seriously during this recording. So I hoped you enjoyed that. Um, lore seekers, baby. Oh, that was so cool. Dude, is that a freaking voice for radio? Oh, well, he does voice. That's it. He does a professional voice actor for everyone who's here in chat. Right. That's Master Khan if you're in chat. It's everyone part lore seekers. It's amazing. And now we have our own bard. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, that was fantastic. Jibs and Thanks. I literally had a kitten. When we saw that, like he yeah. had one, and then I had my own. We didn't have each other's kitten. But uh, I mean, I don't think that uh, I don't make babies with tails. Not that you know of, anyway. But it, <laughs> Master Conniff, like that was an honor. Agreed. Like really, 100%. a freaking honor. I can't even Agreed. believe the fact. Number one, that you took the time to write that and record it. And completely nail it. Like, that was us. The lyrics were us. It was from our storyline and yeah. from everything we do. And, I mean, you had the right faction and everything. Isn't that right, Chibs? <laughs> Bleed I... yellow, bitch. Let me say this. If I had a choice, it would be Ebonheart. But we, we're currently lore seek. I'm shut. I'm talking. I'm so sorry. We're having technical we're, difficulties we're right now because my co-host <laughs> is a total douchebag. That being said, lore seekers are all married Dominion. I will cut you in your sleep. <laughs> we're, we're lore seekers all married Dominion. So that being said, 
will defend the Dominion, but at the end of the day, I'm Dunmer, I love Nord, so if it was my personal choice, Ebonheart for the pack, but that being said, Lord Seekers is the Dominion, so I <laughs> And they put on my pants and then my underwear. <sighs> I hate you so much. I know, but that's what makes it so fun. So anyway, my friends. Master Conniff. Conniff, thank you. Thank that you, good sir. Absolutely. Are you going to do a lore lesson? Are you, you know, I'm going to do a lore lesson. We're giving Master Conniff his, his due. He's due I that. I agree. That was great. It was freaking amazing. It was amazing. <sighs> I can't even believe it. Like, that's a, it's a thing. Someone wrote us a song. <laughs> I can't I know, right? It. Like, what? <laughs> that's so cool. I love it. Toss a coin to lore seekers. Oh, queen of all Mary. We love you, Kate. That's right. Yep. Long live Beckinsale. Long live Beckinsale. That's right. Kate, when you're listening to the show, because clearly we know you're a listener and a subscriber, and a, uh, I'm just going to shut up. That's not even the case. Yeah, that will never be the case. (laughs) That'll never be the case. I mean, I love my wife, but I might flip a hand grenade under her chair (laughs) to get the old Kate. And she might be age my wife is with Ryan. Oh, yeah. I mean, my wife, same way with Ryan Reynolds. I I love you. My wife's the same way for Ryan Reynolds. I don't even blame her. She tells me I have a a date with Ryan. I say, have fun, baby. Dude. (laughs) I'd leave you. I'd I'd definitely leave you for Ryan Reynolds. I'd leave you for a a freaking. Choose your words. A a scamp. That's hurtful. Ryan Reynolds is such a far cry from a scamp. Anyway, I got lore. Are you ready for lore? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think I have a... I, I think, I think, I think, I think. Oh, week after week, I put up with you. Well, we're, it's only fair. I bring it back. We're going to start off tonight with a little read. Just a short little read. This is a really cool lore lesson, uh, and it's completely appropriate for, for this week. So the read starts. And Pelinal came to Perif's camp of rebels, holding a sword and mace, both encrusted with the smashed viscera of elven faces, feathers, and magic beads, which were the markings of the Aeliadun. Stuck to the redness that hung from his weapons, he lifted them, saying, These were their eastern chieftains, no longer full of their talking. Boom. Lore Seekers, it is that time of year again, my friends. Mid-year mayhem. This is the Elder Scrolls Online's player versus player event that we all long for. It is finally here. Unfortunately, we're like almost halfway through it. But the Lore Seekers have long held the tradition of hunting antiquities and lore books to increase our knowledge of the Elder Scrolls universe. But once a year, we descend upon the depths of the Imperial City sewers hunt the vast lands of Overland Cyrodiil in search of glorious battlefield victory. This year, we have not disappointed. The lore seekers have jumped in head first, and we may have just discovered an unknown love for yet another challenging side of ESO. Now, during mid-year mayhem, especially if you've taken the quest, which you should have, We pay tribute to a legend of the battlefield, a crusader of blood and grit, an entity, a spirit some called him, who changed the very face of Tamriel's landscape forever. Helena Whitestrake, the Divine Crusader, has our attention this week. And we'd be remiss not to give him the spotlight during this week, this 10 days of Mid-Year Mayhem. 
So Pelena Whitestrake has one of the most mysterious backgrounds of any Elder Scrolls legend. He was said to have emerged in Tenern like a Padmaic, pure energy of Padme himself, the primordial deity or the creation myth of the Oribis who personifies the very concepts of chaos and change. It was said that he was carried by Sithis and all other forces of change. Pelena Whitestrake can be described as a pure spirit who arrived on Nern to champion the cause of mankind and stop the earliest of the elves from taking over control of the world. Little disclaimer here. I like elves. And the things that Pelena Whitestrake did to the elves is kind of justified. I will explain. First fun fact. It is said that Pelena Whitestrake had a strong bond to Akatosh, the chief deity of the divines and the dragon god of time, as we have explained in a previous lore lesson. It is also said that Pelena Whitestrake actually held the amulet of kings in his chest instead of a mortal beating heart. That one piqued my interest. Hmm. So first appearing in the Merithic era... Helena Whitestrake was said to wander Tamriel under a slew of different aliases, never really setting roots in one place for too long. Whitestrake would settle into a territory, build and empower an army to conquer the surrounding lands before abandoning his leadership to wander the wilds of Tamriel once again. And he did this over and over again, started to develop a reputation for it. During the first era, Pelena Whitestrake amassed an army to fight the ancient aliens of Cyrodiil. He joined forces with the human Alessia to battle their alien slave masters when he heard of her revolt against the elves. So just to clear it up, the alien slave masters of Cyrodiil enslaved the human imperials that were there. Alessia said, no more. And she started a revolt. And Pelena Whitestrake heard of it and rallied to her side. And as we said in the quote when we started, it was said that Pelena Whitestrake arrived at Alessia's revolt, her camp of revolt, with his mace and sword encrusted with the entrails of elves, destroyed sacred alien symbols, feathers and pearls, and joined her valiant cause for freedom of men. He was immediately given the position of her champion, alongside her lover, the demi-prince Morahouse, the man-bull. So there were three of them, Alessia, her lover, the demi-prince Morahouse, the man-bull, and now Alessia's champion, Helena Whitestrake. So over time, every elf in Cyrodiil became an enemy of Whitestrake. Instead of army-to-army battlefield combat, Whitestrake made the highest-ranking members of the alien armies his targets. He would call them out one by one, inviting them to -to head-to-head duels to challenge the authority and their leadership in the region. It's kind of reminded me of that Shadows of Mordor game where he would just call out. He'd call out all the orcs. Yep. (laughs) So anyway, that's what he did. He took the leadership. He went straight to the head instead of just diving into battle with thousands and thousands of troops. 
So during one of his most renowned duels, he defeated Haramir of Copper and Tea in a duel at the Tor, where Pelinal Whitestrake defeated him handily and ate his neck veins and called out to the praise of Remen, who was not known to the mortal world at the time. So who was Remen? I'll tell you in this fun fact. Remen was known as the worldly god and became the cultural god hero of the Second Empire. Remember, we're still in the first. Remen would later become known as the greatest hero of the Akaviri invasion into Cyrodiil, where he would build the Remen Empire and conquer a majority of Tamriel, except for one place. Jibs, you'll be proud to know that one place was Morrowind. Yeah. We said, nope. Dirty dark elves. Get the F out. So duel after duel, it took the Divine Crusader less than one year to drive the Iliad armies back and claim all of the eastern lands in the name of Alessia. Nothing could stop the momentum that he created as Whitestrake moved to free every single slave in all of Cyrodiil. The Nords of Skyrim, who had come to Alessia's aid, first encountered Pelina Whitestrake standing at the bridge of Helden. You'll like this part. Pelina Whitestrake's normally white hair was matted and stained with the blood of thousands of elves, so much so that his white hair had turned to a darker shade of brown. The Nords, bearing witness to this, bearing witness to him standing on that bridge, actually thought that their patron god Shore had returned. Wow. I could just picture Rigert on that bridge. <laughs> I was wondering, uh, hey, uh, Lieutenant? <laughs> is, is that Shore? <laughs> and then Rigert just being backhanded. Shut up, Rigert. We're busy. Uh, oh, so funny. Oh. All right, fun fact. Pelinol had personally trained and cared for an imperial slave by the name of Huna. It was said that Pelinol Whitestrake had a very strong love for Huna, and when she was felled by an arrow strung by Selethalel, God, this is a hard one. Selethalel the singer, who is an alien warrior, Pelinol Whitestrake fell into a fit of madness at watching her, watching Huna be felled. He began to relentlessly kill without purpose slaying any mortal to stand in his way. It was only when Alessia reached to the gods for help that Pelina would regain his composure and end his rampage. Now, he did have a demise, unfortunately. In the first era, year 243, Pelina Whitestrake would be coaxed into a powerful confrontation with the demigod half-elf known as Umaril the Unfeathered. We covered this in another lore lesson. I'm sure you probably remember it, but I get a little more in detail with this one. Umaril would challenge Whitestrake to a duel. Angered and insulted by Alessia's advice of delaying the confrontation, Whitestrake blindly headed out to face Umaril the Unfeathered alone. He was pissed because he was personally called out but he did not know that this was a well-planned trap. Helena Whitestrake was met by battle-hardened soldiers who were ready for the fight. 
Knowing Whitestrake would be tired from battle, Umaril the Unfeathered waited for the most opportune moment to surround Whitestrake with his own contingent of alien sorcerer kings and their Daedric minions. Wounded and weakened in the ensuing battle, Whitestrake faced Umaril the Unfeathered, but bested him, killed him on the spot. It was only when Helena Whitestrake's rage got the best of him when he outwardly insulted the elven ancestry of Umaril in front of the unit of fleeing sorcerer kings. That pissed them off greatly. They became enraged, rallied together, returned to the battlefield, and overwhelmed Pelinal Whitestrake. Pelinal was defeated. It was said that his body was cut into eight pieces, a number that was symbolic to the alien culture. So in response, Alessia was awakened. She heard of his defeat, rallied her army, and descended upon the city city and stormed its walls. But there were no aliens left to kill because Pelina Whitestrake had killed all of them on the way in. Now, besides the ones who had already escaped fleeing for their lives, there were none left. Fun fact. It was said that when the man Bull Mora House reached his friend, Whitestrake, only his head remained. All of the other parts were gone of the poor dude. But the severed head shockingly spoke to Mora House for a long period of time. They had a conversation where Pelina Whitestrake talked about his most regretful of mistakes. Alessia herself would never hear of the truths of this morbid conversation. Pelina Whitestrake's true dying words to his friend Morahouse were as follows. Beware, Morahouse, beware. With the foresight of death, I know now that my foe yet lives. Bitter knowledge to take my grave. Better that I had died believing myself the victor, although cast beyond the doors of night, he will return. So be vigilant. I can no longer shield the host of men from Umaril's retribution. It was also known that Pelina Whitestrake would return to Tamriel in the first era year 266 when the Empress Alessia died. It was said that Pelina Whitestrake found true salvation after his death and was freed after his mental anguish. He pledged himself to become the protector and guardian of Alessia's soul in the afterlife. He would periodically return to Tamriel to counsel a budding hero in their quests, such as with the hero of Kavach in the Third Era. But Pelina Whitestrake gave his entire being to forge a new era of freedom and peace in Tamriel. And due to his selfless deeds, Alessia ushered in the formation of the First Empire. The Imperials considered the Divine Crusader the hero who helped free Cyrodiil of its oppressors. Little fun fact. In the Third Era, the Order of the Knights of the Nine would be formed with the intention of recovering the lost armor of Pelinal Whitestrake, known as the Relics of the Crusader. Having been successful in recovering many pieces, the Order was split in the Third Era, year 121, during the War of the Red Diamond. The relics, once again, became lost to time. 
So I'm not really going to lie, but this lore lesson actually makes me like the Imperials for a minute. It's kind of mm. freaking sad, like what happened and how they, they persevered. Yeah, that was gnarly. Very gnarly. But what I wanted to do, I didn't want everybody to go get that quest in Cyrodiil to get your, your Pelinal Scroll and not know what the hell it meant. Right. That's what it means. Like, the dude was an insane crusader. By the way, he was a Templar. So, you know. Shut up. You what shut up. Talk to me like that. Oh. All right. <laughs> oh, buddy, that was good. Thank you. That- Travelers, my friends. So we're going to do something a little bit different this week. And what we're going to do is we're going to answer some of the requests that we've been getting from listeners for lore lessons on some of the lesser known stuff. Some stuff's still pretty mainstream, but there's just not enough to do like a full lore lesson. So we're going to hit a few different little things that have been submitted by some of our friends out there in Lore Seeker land and uh, answer some of these little lore bits. Actually, lore bits. I kind of like that. Oh, yeah. It's a jingle. Do we have a jingle? Yeah. Uh, jingle, 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 jingle. Orbits. Ring, 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 ring. <laughs> like our new bumper? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this first one was submitted by Anne uh, via our contacts on uh, com, And she had a question about Legion Zero. And I thought, hmm, that's actually a pretty darn good thought. And the reason being is because with mid-year, the Mid-Year Mayhem event, we've kind of all become acquainted with Legion Zero because those were the set of armor motifs that you were able to earn by the drops in Imperial City Sewers or by purchasing them from event tickets from the Impresario. So there's not a whole lot of lore to be had about what Legion Zero was, but there is some very learnable things. The information I was able to track down is that in Legion Zero is actually an Imperial Legion that was loyal to the Daedric Prince Molag Ball. So when the Daedra had invaded Imperial City, many of the Imperial Legion soldiers who were there in the first place actually survived the attack from the Daedra. So instead of choosing to fight to their death, many of them chose to survive, but in doing so, they were forced to actually drink the blood of Cold Harbor which would slowly transform them into mind-shriven and slaves of Molag Ball. So those armored soldiers became known as Legion Zero. There was a captain who was a former member of the Imperial Legion by the name of Captain Regulus, and he can be found in the Elven Gardens district of Imperial City right now if you were to go down there. Now, he will give you a quest called The Lock and the Legion, now, he's a relatively new member of Legion Zero, and he's slowly turning into Mind Shriven after drinking the blood of Cold Harbor. And you can tell when you talk to him, although he answers you quite well for Mind Shriven, you can see that he's turning because he's got this icy blue hue in his eyes. So I thought that was pretty darn cool. Legion Zero, defunct Imperial Legion soldiers who are now Mind Shriven and under the guise, or under the control of Molag Ball. I'm not going to lie. I would really, really, really like expanded content regarding Legion Zero. 
You know, whether it's a full-on themed dungeon, I think there's something to that, man. That'd be great for ESO. It'd be awesome. A dungeon. Yep. A dungeon would be super cool with all where you have to actually battle the Imperial Legion or the um, yeah. Legion Zero. You know, good Imperials once dead on the ground. Am I right? Hmm? Uh, you uh, are right. Uh, you are right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of the yeah. Imperial Legion, <laughs> why would we not cover what the actual Imperial Legion is as well? And this was also submitted by Anne via LoreSeekersPodcast.com. While we're on the subject of the Imperial Legion, who were they? As part of the original army of the Cyrodiilic Empire, the Imperial Legion was the military branch that was loyal to whoever was ruling the Ruby Throne. Ruby, One more time. Ruby Throne at the time. So during the timeline of Elder Scrolls Online, which is the second era, the Empire has fallen into disarray, as you all know. So there's really no true Emperor except for Cash for like five minutes. Of Cyrodiil. <laughs> so the Empire has fallen into this disarray. It it originally had leadership by Clivia Tharn. And the power behind the scenes at the time was Menemarco, the King of Worms. But all that is over now. And there's a battle going on in Cyrodiil for control. In between three different legions. Three alliances. You already know about them. The Daggerfall Covenant, the Ebonheart Pact, and the Old Mary Dominion. Wow. Anyway, the Empire having lost control of those many provinces and the Imperial Legion becoming scattered across Cyrodiil, this is what we are dealing with now in Cyrodiil. All of these different factions vying for control. So, the only place you're really going to find any true Imperial Legion that are still together is just kind of scattered around Cyrodiil. You'll see little encampments and stuff that still have some um, splintered portions of the Imperial Legion. Now, according to UESP, several Imperial Legion regiments still do exist and can be found within Elder Scrolls Online. And these are the Legion of the Westweald, which is an Imperial Legion from Colovia, tasked with securing the recently annexed Southweld for the Colovian states. You can find Legion Zero, which we just talked about, the traitorous Imperial Legion within the Imperial City that is sworn fealty to Molagbal. Then there's the second Legion, which is uh, the Legion that accompanied Varen Aquilarios, the prophet, during the Colovian Revolt. And they're headquartered in peacetime in the vicinity of Bruma, which is in Cyrodiil proper. Actually, not Cyrodiil proper, but in the region of Cyrodiil, just up on the north end. Then there is the Fourth Legion, which uh, Quintilia Rulis worked in the engineering auxiliary of this legion, operating trebuchets before deserting, which is just kind of a whole side story that we're not going to get into. There's the Fifth Legion led by Captain Lampronius, who was training new recruits, and they also have a beer named after them called the Fifth Legion Porter. I'm trying to sound imperial. You did really good. Does that sound snooty? I mean, you're pretty snooty. I mean, that's up there with High Elf. <laughs> Perfect. Not so douchey, though. They're a little less douchey than High Elves. <laughs> right, they're a little bit invasive. They're a little bit less invasive as the High Elves. They have more never... armor. Maybe they're a little smarter. Yeah. I'll never forget that high elf who came across at uh, Skyreach. 
once you realize your race your race is worthless, yeah. then we can use you. Oh yeah, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, racism is real in this game. <laughs> <laughs> it's so terrible. This went to eleven real quick. Oh my god, how did they get away with this? <laughs> then there's the sixth legion, but little is known about the sixth legion. A former member by the name of Antonia Gratas recalls brief tales of her exploits. Perhaps that will turn into a lore lesson one of these days, because Sixth six mm. Legion sounds very special ops to me. Sounds very black ops. I like that well, stuff. <laughs> I really do. I like it. I really do. Then there's the Seventh Legion. This is one of the Imperial Legions that uh, has taken control in Southern Bank Ride. There's quest lines in there about that. And then the Ninth Legion, which is part of the first group of Imperial troops that were sent to Black Marsh. This Legion was lost in a cave in Markmire. Okay, I got another one. This is, uh, we're, we're transitioning here into the next submission. This one was submitted by Gary, also on our website, loreseekerspodcast.com. This one is about the Brothers of Strife. I had no idea what this was until I looked at a picture of it and I was like, oh yeah, I've been there. So if you've been in Southern Stonefalls, you may have noticed a massive series of ruins that has a big statue over the top of them. It's kind of south of Ebenhart, but the Brothers of Strife is the name, and it's basically two brother-looking things. It's just a big, giant statue made out of the native rock that's there. It's kind of that red, reddish-brown type of rock. But somebody carved out of that two brothers like fighting each other. And it's right there. It's a pretty, pretty cool little monument. Now, if you want to know what it's about, you want to know the history of what the towering symbol is, then you have to take a series of quests that are basically right there. There'll be a Dunmer, a Dunmer sorcerer by the name of Vinal. It's Dunmer. It's what? It's Dunmer. I'd appreciate it if you pronounce my race appropriately. Sorry about it. It sounded like a buzz was flying in my ear. You said it's pronounced dumber? Yeah, it's pronounced dick. Are you saying pamb? Dick. With a B? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Come on. Time for lore. Ah. All right, so anyway, you can get a quest from a Dunmer sorcerer by the name of Vinal who requests your help with his research of the origins of the statue. So you'll uncover a series of stones for him that are going to that are going to thrust you back in time to commune with the spirits of the brothers who unfortunately met their demise at the same location of the statues. Now the brothers, by the name of Balreth and Sadal, were very powerful Chimer military officers way back in the Marithic era who were plunged into a conflict with the Needs. Now you'll remember the Needic people were a race of men who existed in the region during the Merithic era. Well, they were at odds with the Chimer. So at the time, the brothers and their forces were unable to beat the Nedic armies. But through this series of quests, you can aid the brothers in sacrificing their own lives to transform into beings of pure elemental fury to defeat the Needs. So in doing this, the brothers rise up and become engulfed in flames, and then they again rise from the ashes as these powerful beings of fire and fury, and then you are able to witness the brothers' triumph over the Nedic forces. Kind of a cool little quest line, walks you through the story yeah. of what the statue is, 
And that was a, a question that was submitted by Gary. So I'm sure Gary probably already been through this, the, the quest line, but just kind of wanted it presented to our lore fans. So there you go. I like it. I like it. That was good. Thank you. So we're going to close with one last thing. This is a lore clarification from last week when I gave the lore lesson on Pelinal Whitestrick. And in doing so, I mentioned that Pelinal Whitestrick had a student by the name of Huna, who he unfortunately witnessed die on the battlefield. For some reason, and it might make sense when I read through this, but for some reason, I assumed that Huna was a female. Now, I got some mail. It wasn't hate mail. It was just mail. Some clarification mail. One of them was saying that Huna was actually a male. And then another was stating that, excuse me, that Huna really, there was no actual official clarification in the lore stating that Huna was either male or female. So anyway, my apologies. I was kind of an oversight. I just assumed it. But this is kind of why I assumed it. This is me telling you, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> this is kind of what I'm doing right now. Which, it's not really a big deal if you ask me. I don't think we're going to offend anybody because I thought Huna was a female. Anyway. Here is the kind of clarification from the Elder Scrolls Wiki. And this is a quote. This, this comes, this is a quote from the Song of the Pelinal. When Huna, whom Pelinal raised from grain slave to hoplite, which is a warrior, and loved well took death from an arrowhead made from the beak of Selethal the Singer, the White Strake went on his first madness. So when Pelina White Strake saw Huna take an arrow to the face, he was pissed. That's basically what happens here. He, he flips his crap. So to continue, eventually White Strake and Huna developed a relationship, and it was said that White Strake loved Huna. In the first era, year 242, Una was killed by the arrows of Selethalel, did this last week, Selethalel the singer. (laughs) Una's death drove White Strake to madness and led him to rampaging across Cyrodiil, destroying many alien cities, including Narlame and Celadil. Now, the line, quote, a hoplite who Pelinal loved well, unquote. In the book, the Song of Pelinal, book three, was originally a hoplite who Pelinal often shared a tent with at night, unquote. It was changed as to not state Pelinal's sexuality due to the player character, the hero of Kavach, taking Pelinal's title in a, in a sense becoming him. So this, in a lot of ways, explains how they didn't want to go one way or the other and, like, lock him into a certain sexuality. Like, they just wanted it to be open-ended, so it's totally fine. Now, I just figured, maybe I just assumed and I shouldn't have assumed that Huna was a female. I don't know. I guess Huna just doesn't sound like a dude's name, but whatever. I'm, I screwed up. I'm being completely honest with you. Yeah, I wouldn't that name. I wouldn't. I've guessed to be a a male name, but regardless. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to put your best foot forward and putting the Lord together and do a good job. So no, no, no. I appreciate it. And it's like it, this, this was just. It was one of those weird things. Like that's just kind of what I assumed. And like, who cares? Like, do your thing, Pelinal. Honestly, whatever you're into, do your thing. Just the way it is, the way it should be. Anyway. There you go. 
That's where we're at. I'm not going to try and explain myself out of the damn paper bag anymore. <laughs> I'm going to burn the paper bag now. <laughs> I love everybody equally. I don't care what you're into. That's what uh, I'm saying. <laughs> yes. So anyway, do you have a request for a lore lesson? This was kind of fun for me to do because I didn't really have to think about it this week. I just did the thing. So. All right. So Cash has a special lore lesson, uh, I think. Uh, are you are you ready to, to dish this out? I don't even know what it is. Hell oh, yes. Okay. Apparently, this is for you, Lehman. Oh man. So, uh, yeah. Well, this is. I, I actually, I actually hit Lehman up um, earlier in the week, just asking if he had a favorite piece of lore, and he gave me a few general topics, and I had to pick the one, at least the one topic that I think that he uh, that he would have liked, and it has something to do with our scaly friends. Yay! Yay! And just because it's a very special week on the Lore Seekers podcast, we're so honored to have you here. And we, we uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. We absolutely had to do something to to treat you a little bit. And I know you already know this story. Our folks might not know the story, which is why I wanted to bring you a story about our Argonian friends from Merkmire. So this week we are dedicating our lore lesson to you, the master storyteller. Lore Master Lehman Tuttle. Sweet. So tonight we're going to tell the story in lore lesson number 91. We still can't believe we've done 91 freaking lore lessons. We are going to keep you on for number 100, but we didn't want to wait. We're like, no, let's have him on now. (laughs) Anyway, tonight we are doing a lore lesson on Red Bramman, the notorious Argonian pirate and brigadier. Now this certain Red Bramman operated out of Black Marsh during the First Era. Now, Bramman was given the nickname Red because of some long red hair that he had, which was very uncharacteristic for the scaly race of Argonians. Now, there is some speculation that Red Bramman was actually a human because of how he was described in the book A Pocket Guide to the Empire, but he is largely known to have been an Argonian. So operating in the area of Topol Bay, Red Bramman and his pirate crew would use the waterways to reach imperial settlements and caravans and rid them of their valuables and then disappear into the deep marshlands of Black Marsh. Bramman and his brigands were not very easy to track as they would venture deeper and deeper into the swamplands further than anyone had ever attempted. Here's a little fun fact for you. Deep within the swamps of Black Marsh, where now is the site of the city of Black Rose, Red Bramman had established a very sizable bandit kingdom hidden deep within the marshlands. And it was connected to the Topol Bay by a series of waterways and winding rivers with thick mangroves, which shrouded the entry and exit from Bramman's ships, which is going to become a very important point here. Now, because of the piracy of Bramman against the Alessian Empire in Topol Bay, Red Bramman became the focus of then Empress Hestra of Cyrodiil. He was lifting a lot of things from Cyrodiil, and Hestra got super pissed. Hestra got pissed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of Hestra got pissed off story. Yes, and this one in particular she instigated an anti-piracy campaign the first year of year 1033 and called for the head of Red Bramman. 
Now, the problem was Red Bramon was very, very crafty, and he would prove to be a very difficult quarry to catch because not only him, but his crew were super elusive. So the Imperials would continue their pursuit of the Pirate King Red Bramon, and many, many battles would take place in the Topol Bay. But Red Bramon would always escape. And they remained, uh, all of these battles remained largely unsuccessful for the Imperials until the Imperial Navy uncovered something that would turn the tide in their favor. They discovered to pursue Bramon, and they discovered his means of escape. And it was a narrow, winding river that emptied into the Topol Bay near the settlement of Solrest. Now, the entrance to this waterway was concealed by the thick mangroves and dense, dense forest land that was there, swampland that was there, and was not easily visible. Here's another little fun fact. This particular area that Bramon was escaping to was deep in the mangroves. And little was known about the Argonian culture by the men of Cyrodiil. The native Argonians in the area of Black Marsh were very, very weary of Imperials because they had a history of raiding and enslaving the lizard race. So the Imperials made many attempts to push deeper and deeper into the marshlands to settle, especially when they were trying to fight that piracy. But the native Argonians began to fight back and they started to get increasingly violent fearing that more Imperials would come if they were allowed to set roots into the region. Now back to Bramon. Once the Imperials had discovered his hidden waterway and how he was able to escape so quickly, they gave chase deep into the mangroves and eventually followed Bramon and his crew onto land. Now the Imperials tracked Bramon and his brigands deep into the heart of Black Marsh, eventually cornering them in the area that is now known as Black Rose. Bramon was finally caught, and when he was caught, he was immediately executed, and his head was delivered to Empress Estra. Ooh. Kind of gnarly, kind of a terrible end for such a kick-ass character with a really cool story, and I wish there was more. I truly do, because he was a really cool pirate, especially in those waterways and just being able to navigate those quickly and escape and I love that whole story. But in my personal opinion, I don't think that Red Bramon was just a pirate. When you really think about it, he was unafraid of an encroaching foreign enemy. When the Imperials were moving in and enslaving them, he knew that was a threat. And so much so, he launched his own offensive against them and hit them where it hurt in their pocketbook. So well-known for for forging behind the scenes and enemy type sabotage warfare, the Argonians chose to fight smarter than their opponent. And they continued to do this for years. So would, was Red Bramon in it just for the loot? Or was there an ulterior motive at hand? I personally believe that aside from simple piracy for personal gain, Red Bramon and his crew were striking back at an enemy who struck first. And I applaud them for that. Another course to consider is that Tamriel as a whole during the first era knew very little about Argonian culture because they didn't travel outside of Blackmarsh. It wasn't until the infamous raid of Red Bramon by the Imperials and when he was tracked into the Blackmarsh and the piracy was ended 
that the entire world of Tamriel would come to discover and eventually love the mysterious culture of the Argonians. But I wanted to end with a little, a little excerpt from A Pocket Guide to the Empire. This is the third edition, and it's entitled The War with the Trees, Argonia and the Black Marsh. And it reads, The historian Brendan the Persistent writes, The Argonian people have, throughout Tamrielic history, been perhaps the most misunderstood, vilified, and reviled of all the sentient races. Yet those who have taken the time to experience Argonian culture have gained a greater appreciation for this noble and beautiful people. End quote. But it should be noted that the historian disappeared during his final expedition into the deeper swamps of Black Marsh. And that, my friend, is for you, Mr. Loremaster. Thank you. As well, you know, I love them Argonians. I know. I think there's going to be a lot of people who give you a hard time. There's there's a lot of debate about Red Bramman, whether he's actually an Argonian or not. Yeah, there is. I started to find that during during my thing. I decided to go with, yeah, he's he's Argonian. That's, that's not my whole deal. That's <laughs> the way the lore tells it. And like to me, like between the Imperial Library and UESP, those are my sources. Unless you say different, sir. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get in the. Um, but Argonian history, you know, is, is the best. Everybody should read more of it. Uh, why yeah. is that? Why do you? Why do you feel that way? Why do I love the Argonians so much? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, why do you? Yeah, like, why do you feel there's? Do you feel like they're misunderstood? Do you, do you feel like there's yes. more to it? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that we have a lot of. I mean, when we were messing with them in Meyer, I think that we have a lot of Western biases about what constitutes civilized life. And you know, we got this idea that oh, you got to build a house out of rocks, or yeah, you have to build these things that last a long time. Right. And uh, and I th- I think that's that's a fundamental misreading what civilization is supposed to be and um argonians they they live the way they do because they want to live That's, not afraid of a yeah. radical future where you know things things disappear things fall apart and they face that with bravery and and grace and uh i think that they're, they're they're super cool they're the they're they're absolutely the best <laughs> i keep saying this I, I love all of our children i do i love them all, <laughs> do love you- them all dearly do you love the Dunmer any less because we enslaved the Argonians? So, uh, yes. Well, you know, yeah, that's that's a bummer. Yeah, I'm uh, not going to lie. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, um, I do. Have, I have one thing that I want to add about the Argonians because I'm totally on on the page with that, and, and now I'm like, play a damn Argonian. Why don't you play one? But here's one thing about the Argonians that I think the world could learn from: when an Argonian moves from Black Marsh and relocates to another area of Tamriel. They have this innate interest in the culture of where they're at and assimilating with, with where they are. And I think Mm. if other people took interest in other people's cultures, the entire world would be better for it. And I don't mean to get philosophical, but I, I love that about this lore is they, they just have that innate trait. Is it even a trait? I don't know, but, that is how they choose to do it. Rather than tell of their own history and where they're from, they want to learn of the history and where they're at. Uh, yeah. I think that's incredible. That's good. And really smart writing, too. It's really good. 
That's good stuff. Yeah. Very responsible. Oh, well, good lore lesson. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Fun one. Layman. Buddy. Yeah. I wish this wasn't over. Oh, man. Yeah, we could do this for a whole nother hour. This has been a year in the making. And uh, we just appreciate having you on, man. This has been a good time. That's been a blast, man. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, absolutely.